I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Oh, and welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil. <laughs> and with me today is the Pierre to my sunny Jim. The listener, I don't want to make these sounds in your ear. You don't, you may not know what these sounds are, but we're going to be looking at- I don't at, know what those sounds are. I, I've watched it multiple times with you. I it, still don't know what the sounds it's are. It's pain. It's just pain. Listener, we today are going to be going through a series of short films from- David Lynch. You may have heard of him. You may have seen his hair. And now you are going to hear about his short films that you might have also seen. Uh, I'm going to go yeah. ahead and list the ones that we're talking about today in advance. In case you decide, dear listener, that you want to check some of them out, either for the first time or as a rewatch prior to this podcast. If you choose not to, that's perfectly fine. Just know that the things we're describing are very visual mediums and are talking about it even if we spoil plot details, is not a replacement for the actual thing. Yes, so if you want to welcome David Lynch and his films into your home, just note that <laughs> there will be content mostly in one of the specific yeah. films uh, that will include things such as potentially semen, uh, the amount of piss, and blood, and child abuse. Yes, uh, so there's a general content warning here. A lot of the stuff is more implied and abstract, but there's definitely some dark material he's working with in some of these, mm -hmm. especially Pierre and Sonny Jim. So we are looking first at the six short films traditionally included on the DVD and Blu-ray release known as the short films of David Lynch. These are also often available on the Criterion Channel subscription service if you're looking for them. Those are Six Men Getting Sick Six Times, mm -hmm. The Alphabet, The Grandmother, mm -hmm. The Amputee, the Cowboy and the Frenchman, and Lumiere, also known as Premonitions Following an Evil Deed. No, 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 Khalil, we're, we're missing one. Uh, that's TV Calibration. TV Calibration, the seventh one, that is exclusive <laughs> to the DVD. I don't even know if all versions have that, but TV <laughs> Calibration. Also, we looked at, from YouTube, Pierre and Sonny Jim, and Fire Posar. And lastly, from Netflix, What Did Jack Do? These are not all of the short films of David Lynch. There are plenty, plenty more. Um, so if you're wondering why something wasn't included, we just figured nine was a good number for today. Doesn't mean we're not going to go over them sometime later. In particular, we are going to look at Industrial Symphony closer to Wild at Heart and Dumbland and Rabbits closer to Inland Empire. Those are planned. I'm also loosely at some point wanting to do an art and music of David Lynch type of podcast. And we might at some point throw in like other shorts, uh, including the quinoa video, which many of you might be aware of. That I am not aware of. As we're talking about these, I'm going to throw out some trivia. Uh, I did a little bit of research, and my sources are Wikipedia, IMDb, LynchNet, and Senses of Cinema. By no means is this extensive research. A lot of these projects were done in like a day or two on a rather small budget like 30 years ago or 40 years ago or 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. So there's not as much that I could find out about them. If I end up finding something about any of these films later on accident, I might include it in a future podcast episode just like as a little anecdote. But I feel like we got a little bit of something on everything. So, yeah. I'm also putting timestamps in the description. Whether you're looking at a YouTube video right now, it'll be in the description there. Or the podcasting service. If it lets you see the description, it'll be there with timestamps. <laughs> Professor, 
quick question for you. Okay. I was here when you watched them, but I didn't quite get a full state of being update during it. I know that during Fire Walk With Me, when you watch it for the first time, you like started in, into a, a trance state and you were like walking around aimlessly. I didn't notice you do that for the missing pieces as much. Yeah. But after the short films, okay. how did they make you feel? Uh, after the short films, I would say for the vast majority of them, I was mainly, what would you call, observant of them quietly, respectively, mm -hmm. and just sort of watching them and just relaxing as I tried to take it all in, with all but one exception. <laughs> okay, okay. And so you had never seen David Lynch's solo stuff outside of Twin Peaks before. I had not. How was this as far as a first impression of his general style? Well, I... I wouldn't call it my first impression of his general style. I mean, we got a little bit of that through the Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, if I'm not mistaken. And I think that that already kind of gave me a small bit of a buffer, okay, if you will, just for how things can get a bit more surreal. Did it remind you of Twin Peaks? Like, when you were watching these, did you find yourself like, oh, yeah, I know this guy. It feels like Twin Peaks. I mean, certainly some surreal points and the reuse of certain actors. Yes. Cool. Overall, did you enjoy them? That's a complicated question. I don't know about you, but I, I never really found myself so far in my life. I, I, hopefully years ahead of both of us. Hopefully you both have long lives ahead of us to, to change this. I was never really that big into short films. It's not something I've explored as an artistic medium very much. Really? Uh, recently, I started to look into the, some of the short films of various directors that I'm kind of trying to complete some filmographies of. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of immersed me a little bit more into seeing a few. And I will say that I think Lynch has, among the directors I've focused on, Probably one of the best, if not my personal favorite, uh, repertoire of short films. So I, I don't know. I've really enjoyed this collection, kind of being able to see it alongside Lynch's films years ago, but then revisiting them now and just kind of looking at the short films as their own work. I think it's a really interesting body of work. And again, we only scratched the surface of how much there is. I think that there is a level on it that the way that we viewed it, you're not quite watching it just alone as their own work because we do gain a little bit of insight through each production mm -hmm. from David Lynch himself as small intros. Uh, that is all the ones that we have on the collection yes. DVD and not the other pieces that we find. So we outside. did get some context, yeah, from Lynch himself. So I, I do think that that does add a value and almost sort of adds to the engagement in the media. Well, the first one we're going to look at here is Six Men Getting Sick. No, we're not. We're not, Khalil. We're looking at TV calibration first because we need to make sure that our TVs are properly set towards their proper functions. Or elsewise, how are we to experience the overall beauty and stylings that have been presented before us? So the first one we're looking at is six men getting sick. We're looking at TV calibration because here's the thing. It's right at the bottom and you would not be... I, I, I would not be surprised, that is, if it was like David Lynch making something called TV Calibration. It was something that was actually a short film. But no, it's an instruction to set up your TV. So for context, because I don't know if it's 100% clear to the audience, some DVD versions, I don't know if it's all of them. I don't know if like your Criterion Blu-rays will have this feature. But alongside all of the individual short films, below all of them is just In the a exact thing. same fonts, exact same size. 
It is italicized, though. It is a little different in that way. A little bit italicized, yeah. but maybe that's just how the title is maybe written Maybe that's how the title is written out. <laughs> and it just says TV calibration. If you hit view all at the above, it doesn't play that one because it's not an actual video. No, instead, it takes you step by step and just outright tells you, hey, when you take your TV out of the box, it's trying to burn itself out. So here's some overall instructions to, to watch the film so that they come out as intended. And I really feel like it's here just because of the grandmother. Like, don't get me wrong. A lot of Lynch's films have very dark visuals and colors and contrasts that need to be accounted for. But the grandmother is so specifically dark that I honestly feel like that's why this is here more than anything else. I think there is reason to take that in. Yes. But... We continue on instruction by instruction until eventually we also go through a color coding guide in which you try to match up colors, mm -hmm. which other than some light uses of color in the grandmother, we mostly see color in the Frenchman and the cowboy. Fair enough. I would say those instances of color are very important, though, in mm -hmm. identifying what the colors are supposed to be. But, mm -hmm. but I hear you. Yep. It's kind of like it. There's even just a screen that sort of reminds me of like modern video games mm -hmm. in which it's just like, yeah, adjust your brightness and so on just until this letter kind of gets barely visible. So it, it's very entertaining to find that as well as at the very end that says, hey, if your TV doesn't save these settings, which this is a multi-page process. And I'm just wondering, like the person who got this far to realize, oh, no, my TV won't save this process. Mm -hmm. So they have to memorize it, I guess. I, I thoroughly enjoy the existence of this. I think it was a mistake to put it all the way at the end. Should have been the first thing. Exactly. So now, finally, we get to go on to the DVD menu. Yes, of course. We're going through the DVD menu now, which in itself I find to be its own short uh -huh. film. Khalil, uh, when we open up this DVD, what do we see? We see a face. Mm -hmm. It is from a short film that I want to talk about called Six Men Getting Sick. Yep. And it's David Lynch's plastered face on the screen with words moving about. Yep, it's a beautiful, beautiful face. I'm sure you would agree. As David of Lynch flies vertically onto the screen. Well, we the words, the words David of Lynch. Yep, David of Lynch. <laughs> we see the going in somewhat of an X-form fashion, but sometimes flirts with the horizontal uh -huh. plane. Uh, and then we also have going straight across the X, larger X of the screen yeah. from corner to corner. The spots that you wish that your DVD player would kind of bounce around in was the short film section. And as those sort of wildly go on, that eventually does loop, and you enter in, you're looking through the various short films, right? Yeah. You're looking through piece by piece by piece and piece. You're thinking to yourself, ah, where do I even begin? I mean, I could play all. I could play, like, the Frenchman one. I could play, I could play Lumiere. I could play all sorts of films. And as you're caught with this overall, like, existential crisis of decisions you then see for yourself a stop in the screen that doesn't happen with the looping of text what happens Khalil so you have to go into the episodes and wait there and there'll be what I assume is something involving like a company that worked on making this that's what it feels like but it's not anywhere else as far as I could tell when you view all you don't see this in the credits you don't see it anywhere else mm -hmm. but it's just this weird visual an auditory experience of like a mouth mm -hmm. with some like electricity crackles. Oh, wow. I would never guess where we'd see more of that. And the mouth says in this kind of distorted, I don't know if it's like maybe two voices speaking at the same time or some kind of effect done on it, but it just says the name asymmetrical. 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 
And uh, that's the name of a production company that must have worked on this particular DVD. So, again, I don't know if this is on all the copies or what. Yeah, no, overall, I'm thoroughly entertained. And again, no, no, just reminds me of some things. No, it's fair that it reminds you of something because it does appear just looking at the IMDb of asymmetrical productions. Mm -hmm. It's either owned by David Lynch or they've only worked with David Lynch. (laughs) Um, So they've been involved in various film productions uh, going back since it looks like 1993 as the earliest work and then continuing into 2006 with Inland Empire. Okay, that's... Okay. So, so along with I, Absurda, either Lynch owned or cooperating with him. Or asymmetrical evolved into Absurda. I don't Speaking know, of evolution, can I talk about six men getting sick now? Uh, I guess. I looked on both sides of the box. I sniffed the disc, and I can't find anything else to keep us away. <laughs> Why would you want to stay away from this charming piece of art? I'm trying not to actually sound like a siren because I feel like it could sound close to it and my neighbors would hear at the recording time of 1140 at night. <laughs> it's fine. What better time to talk about these short films than the crack of night? I mean, it's fine to talk about it. It's just, it, it, I don't want like everyone, the listener, yourself, myself, and the neighbors to overall relive the sounds. We're a, uh, we're a calm podcast. We're, we're basically halfway to ASMR. Oh boy! We're, yes. we're here to meditatively make you fall asleep with four-hour conversations. Just, just, just hear, just hear these sweet, sweet crackles of microphone electricity. So, unlike a lot of these, you kind of mentioned how our experience was enhanced. You know, with uh, David Lynch kind of coming in with extra context, we get extra context here. But there's mm-hmm. an argument to be made that you could never really truly experience six men getting sick the way it was meant to be experienced. Yes, because this was made to be like an immersive thing where you'd go in in a room and it would just keep looping the siren with like the physical thing in front of you and like yep yeah so this is a whole mixed media project that we're only getting the recording of just imagine six times only going into a box if you will some might call it a room and looking at this painting as a film reel ends up sort of flashing over it multiple times Again, with the siren going outside of it. Now, this wasn't in the film, but I can only imagine that there's at least one person sitting in the corner staring intensely at the (laughs) film itself, unmoving, unblinking. So six six men getting sick uh, was made during David Lynch's second year at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art. Uh, David Lynch would have been around 20 around this time when he got his start. The film cost $200 to make which at the time would have been a lot of money for for a young little lynchling. Oh, impressive. Uh, And it was an experiment with the idea of a moving painting. He describes it kind of with this weird sense of a wind moving. Uh, Lynch has also described this short film as, quote, 57 seconds of growth and fire and three seconds of vomit, which is also how I described my last marriage. (laughs) You you haven't been married. I'm not married. That was a a joke. You've never been. Okay, that was pretty funny, though. I hope everyone's marriage is going well for whoever is married out there. I'm sorry. You know what they say, two's company, three's a crowd, and six heads is a painting. I'm so so surprised on how it sort of sprouted out, if you will, because David Lynch does talk about, like, the black painting. Yeah. And, like, trying to draw, like, plant life inside of it growing and so on, Mm -hmm. as if they were moving. Yes. Uh, Would you describe the overall painting that we do experience to be like that? 
It is definitely moving. Mm. It is an animated imagery. Ah. So the heads, the three like cast heads, uh, they're based on casts of Lynch's own head. So it is David Lynch's head. Mm-hmm. Yep, these ones seem to be directly on the canvas as opposed towards on the film. And then the last piece of, I guess, background information I have here, apparently there was a blue velvet press kit where somewhere in there David Lynch had said, I don't know if it was writing or spoken, quote, I always sort of wanted to do films, not so much a movie movie as a film painting. I wanted the mood of the painting to be expanded through film, sort of a moving painting. It was really the mood I was after. I wanted a sound with it that would be so strange, so beautiful. Like if the Mona Lisa opened her mouth and turned, there would be a wind. And then she'd turn back and smile. Is the it sound- would be strange. You just cut off David Lynch. I'm sorry, but is the sound of wind also in Six Men? In ca- in that case, if that sound of wind came out of the Mona Lisa... A lot of times Lynch describes the moving of an idea as like a moving with wind, right? He describes okay. it when he was working with Angelo Badalamenti to get the Laura Palmer theme, for example. Okay. We've heard him describe it with a lot of different projects throughout. So that just seems to be one of the recurring ideas of, of wind as sort of a source of inspiration and okay. energy, if you will. So from Laura Palmer to Emergency Siren... What would come out of the Mona Lisa? I mean, that's basically what David Lynch is trying to get at with all of his films, isn't it? (laughs) Because I think that Six Men Getting Sick is a good primer in how David Lynch constructs films less from a sense of a novelist, right? And more of a, or even like a theater performance, and more in the sense of someone who is visual arts primarily, who is more on the painter side more of the conductor side in terms of our electricity music pun from last episode. Okay. And along with a lot of these other short films, you kind of get the sense of there is a story, but the story is not as big of a deal as the emotion it conveys. Mm-hmm. That the story itself is rather abstracted and minimalist. I not think- everything Lynch works on is like that, but this is one of those examples. I think that using wind as somewhat of the comparison making it become the conductor is very apt if you if you will from what i've seen thus far it's where you're kind of guided along with whatever world is set up in front of you mm-hmm. for better or for worse now with all these short films the way i kind of want to approach this is that we just want to first lay out the basics of what happened because for some of these a little unclear and just so we're on the same page Then we can deep dive into the style, the themes, and any connections we might make. Very well. So this one, Mm -hmm. story-wise, it has a 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 countdown. There are then... With with three of the faces already present, which seem to be on the base canvas. Yes. And then two of them are drawn in as we're watching. And then as those two appear to be talking, a third one is also then appearing in between them in the middle. Uh, The way I wrote this in my notes is that the third one is drawn into the conversation. Yes, it's if you order all the figures, the first three on the left side of the canvas, the second set of three will be on the right side, so the fifth one is the one that forms. So the three on the right appear to be talking. I'm going to go on a limb and say that. We see their stomachs below, along with like the esophagus going down to it, and as we look at the stomachs, there's like a little twirly symbol, a little swirly symbol, like their stomachs are churning. We see hands appear reaching for mouths and then later down toward the stomach. On five of the six people, that is, uh, we have one through four and number six who have that case. The number five who was formed has this very eerie x-ray 
that sort of just sits there and doesn't really react or move for the remainder of the performance. Then in that last three-ish seconds that Lynch was describing, we have imagery of fire portrayed through like what appears to be like a match on the bottom right, and there's like a little flame effect in the top left as well. And the whole siren in the background, you can kind of interpret as being like an alert, hey, danger, but also more specifically like a fire siren, like a fire truck kind of thing. Yes. And they start just vomiting out pink guts. Mm-hmm. And it's very violent vomit too, looking at the way it's splattered all over themselves. Mm-hmm. And that is six men getting sick. Yes. Are, are we in agreement that that's like the bare bones, what we can like determine? With the exception of one large flash of red in the middle of all this yeah. scenery, as well as little flashes of text that go sick. And then the, when the countdown's happening, they say, look on four, three, and two Mm -hmm. underneath them. So not much for a narrative. Uh, I think there's just these, these themes that he's working with of sort of sickness spreading between people uh, like a fire, I would argue. I mean, there's not enough surface level story. That is, there might be, of course, things to dig into. Now, Khalil, would you mind if I took a moment to say, for example, go wild with this? Hey, you're a thornberry. So go wild, go Thornberry. Wild. Go wild, Rugrats, etc. What? In Paris, yes. So inside of this film, we again start with the three base figures, and then there's a fourth and a sixth figure that seems to form a fifth figure. Whether this figure that is coming into being is somewhat of a quote unquote patient zero situation, whether or not it's someone who's just brought into this meeting. What's a patient zero? Patient zero is referring to a start of an expanded, say, for example, okay. sickness. It's, it's basically where something has begun. The first one to get the contagion. Yes. Okay. And judging from the organs that are on display, I can't even say they're the same organs because some of them have different shapes. Maybe oh, they're, they're all different, different shapes. Si- yep. Yeah, I don't know if I might be mistaken, but I'm very confident that they're all different shapes. Mm-hmm. If not different styles, maybe they're different like, hey, maybe this is a colon on its side. Uh, <laughs> that's hard to say. At the bottom of it seems to be little perforations at the bottom, very reminiscent to a reel of photos or film reel. And the second figure is the only one that has an organ that reaches down all the way into that film reel that we have stripped at the bottom. The overall film itself flashes a deep red and completely sort of deletes, if you will, the other portion of the film. It just focuses on the three characters on the canvas at first, flashes back before things get a bit more wild in which everyone seems to have blood i would imagine or some sort of form of sickness overcoming their organs dripping down again with the exception of the x-ray until finally everyone ends up vomiting together isn't that what brings us all together as a community as a, as a human species <laughs> is vomiting together no i mean so. the one thing that unites every person across all languages across all cultures religions and creeds it's bodily dysfunction Khalil, illness and death. I don't think that I myself, as a human being, as a test example of this assessment, wants to deal with anyone or be around many individuals when sick. Stay safe, everyone. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But I think the fifth figure is the most notable inside of this, as well as this strange second figure amongst others. The middle figures in both sets of three. Mm-hmm. That seemed to have some 
most notable differences amongst the whole entire group. It almost conveys, if I may believe, that the first three individuals were the most involved with this area this either gathering or this experiment yeah it's totally up to our imaginations what to make if there is a situation at all Mm -hmm. because these could be six people in one room together at a social gathering they could be two sets of three divided between the sculpted ones and the drawn ones with Mm -hmm. the middle one in each group being the main contagion Mm -hmm. or theoretically i don't think it's too hard to believe that these are six people across all of time and space that have gotten (laughs) sick unrelated to each other it's completely possible there is no timeline or setting here Mm -hmm. and thus we have to look on to this well sirens or the wind goes on in the background the whole entire time. I believe that it is to convey urgency. Yeah. Just because it sounds so familiar to, say, for example, sirens that we hear whenever emergency goes around. Especially those fire truck sirens. So whether or not it is something in which the sickness is meant to move quickly or the people amongst the sickness are meant to move quickly, I do still... I'm still kind of scratching at that bit myself on what I feel. Yeah, the main things I think are important to take from here thematically would be that element of fire that's consistent throughout Lynch's work and Mm -hmm. in Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. The sense of illness and sickness spreading, there's going to be more of that. And even repetition itself, because we watched it where it's the six times over and over again. And alternatively, when it was originally shown, we don't even know how many times it would loop in that room at the actual display. Yes. So this was always intended to be like a minute long and just keep going on and on and on repeating. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to that idea then that it was meant to be a work that's constant. Um, If you want to interpret that in a thematic way, maybe it's the idea that illness and suffering is this constant experience Mm -hmm. that's just always happening either to the individual, like some sort of Sisyphean nightmare or to humanity as sort of, again, the thing that unites us is our sense of decay and death. And Lynch is going to keep experimenting with like the human body Mm -hmm. as a source of horror (laughs) um, in many ways. So Mm -hmm. I don't think that's too much of a stretch here. I think it's also interesting that I've seen two different titles float around for this one. Usually it's called six men getting sick, but I've seen six figures getting sick. I think it's interesting to see the differentiation there. I I don't know if one was a scrapped older title. Figures takes away a little bit more of the human element to it. It also makes it more neutral in terms of gender. Um, I I just just thought I'd mention that. There's not to mention the use, the, the first example of use that I have seen in the David Lynch timeline of the use of black, white, and red. Now, mind you, that might have just been some just general limitations. And, of course, there's the color purple, which I'm a big fan of the color I haven't purple. read the book or watched the movie. I'm just a fan of the color purple. No, you are right, though, because we're going to see a lot of those same colors uh, reappear throughout Lynch's body of short films. Including uh, purple? Inc- including purple. Oh. Now and then. Mm. A little bit of tasteful purple. Oh, but mostly black, white, and red. Very well. And we see these continue in the alphabet. So previously, Six Men Getting Sick was a 1966 project. We're looking at two years later in 1968 for the alphabet. It was after Six Men Getting Sick that Lynch was kind of in this sort of frustrated period. He was reluctant to continue working in film because it's very expensive. However, there was this fellow student of his at the Philadelphia University of such and such named H. Barton Wasserman. 
And he saw Lynch's moving painting. He saw six men getting sick. And he's like, man, I really want to give this guy a thousand dollars to make me one of those. I don't know if it would have the siren playing at all or how that's going to work, but make it probably a visual idea, right? Make me something. Here now, is money. Lynch used about half of that, $450, to buy a Bolex camera, and he went to work on filming. However, after working on this project for two months, he took the film out to be developed, only to discover that the film didn't turn out. The camera had a broken take-up spool, which caused the film to move through the gate freely instead of one frame at a time. Basically, it was wasted footage. When Lynch told Wasserman about the ruined film, Wasserman said Lynch could do anything he wanted with the rest of the money, and as a result, the alphabet got some funding. Oh, well, did the... So, he No, lost... the thing never got made. <laughs> he lost a fair amount of money But humanity gained the alphabet. The humanity gained the alphabet. I'm kind of... I wonder if... He got to see the alphabet. I hope that he got would, to would see. Would you give David Lynch $1,000 to make the alphabet? I mean, at that point, it might be break, and I might not get the same thing from the overall line of events here. So we lose the alphabet, Khalil. And the alphabet is such a sad thing to waste and to lose. Is it? I mean, we use it every day. I mean, David Lynch, inside the intro that we do get to experience, not only do we get a little bit of insight on a certain character who would happen to be a certain character, it's a person. I mean, the person character. Are we all just characters on life stage? That's what I'm going for. But William the, Edgar Poe said that once. Yeah, but who is the person involved in the story? Well, the main character we're seeing is played by Peggy Lentz. Yes. Who at the time was David Lynch's wife. Mm -hmm. Now, Peggy Lentz was a painter, like Lynch, worked in visual medium, and she had a niece. And according to Lynch in Chris Rodley's book, Lynch on Lynch, quote, the niece was having a bad dream one night and was saying the alphabet in her sleep in a tormented way. So Lynch took this sort of inspiration from his wife's niece to then be like, okay, I'm going to use the rest of this money that I got with this fancy new camera to have my wife pretend to be my, this child who is going to be kind of like her niece. Yes, and it's based around that nightmare. So, this is basically your niece's nightmare. Yes. Now, so first, David Lynch painted the walls of his upstairs bedroom black. That was his actual upstairs bedroom that he painted black. Lynch painted Peggy's face white to give her sort of an unreal contrast I with really, the black. I really hope it was a different type of paint because now I'm just imagining after David Lynch uses the rolly pin, oh, gets no. it into a new rolly pin, and starts like rubbing that on I'm his I'm sure wife. he painted her first. And I say it in that tone because I don't want this audio to be reused for any purpose. And Peggy Lynch, in addition to playing the girl in this short film, would also play a very minor role in Eraserhead as well later on. Very well. Lynch also, in addition, recorded his newborn daughter, Jennifer Lynch, who had been crying, and he used some effects on her crying and really liked how that sound, so he decided to use his two-year-old daughter's crying in the alphabet as well. <laughs> so... Kind of stewing in the background, I think there's a biographical element that's worth looking into, that this was his wife pretending to be the niece with the audio coming from his actual daughter. Given how much of this has to deal with, like, birthing, childhood, pregnancy, just all, all these sort of things. Not only pregnancy, but again, birthing. Yeah. It, it says a lot that Lynch had recently become a father himself and that the one playing it had been the mother of his child. This film also earned Lynch an American Film Institute production grant and really was kind of the gateway toward him going into the American Film Institute and working on more 
more uh, expensive projects. Yes. And it does it show? How, how would you describe the film, Khalil? The alphabet or the stuff he did at AFI? That the Khalil's interpretation of the alphabet. So, speaking the most literally we can here. Yes, it's just the nightmare of the girl. We're done with the film now, so let's move on to the next short film. So, we have a girl. The credits say girl. Even though it is a fully grown woman, we're going to go with girl. Yes, Who girl. is lying in her bed. Her name is girl. And there's this alphabet letters that keep getting popped up onto a scene. And they're being like birthed out of little like swells in the earth that remember those for the grandmother. And there's sort of this wind sound in the background. Again, wind. You can kind of look at the whole scene that unfolds all the letters developing. Maybe like a weird like panel or like a field. There's like a sky above with a sun of some kind. Yes, it's either the sun or the Japanese flag. Now below we are seeing things sprout up from this overall strange shape of an area. I imagine it's close to a field because Mm -hmm. especially with the sprouting of the trees, it seems that things are growing from the use of the alphabet. There's also a lot of dots, a lot of dots in this little short project. There's the dots that start kind of rapidly appearing toward the bottom of that scene. Yes. There's dots that occur throughout that like land on the girl's bed. And there's this weird moment where there's like a dot almost looks like an old like Pong Atari game. This one dot going perilously between two like white rectangles, never touching the edges, but like going through a tunnel. Which I imagine is something growing out, a seed, if you will. A seed being planted. Yes. Of some kind. Yes. We have various shots of like faces. We've got one where we have the alphabet title card with someone in sunglasses. Something's reflecting in that one eye and I cannot tell what. You should have calibrated we, your TV we better. Cali- it's your TV and it was calibrated. Uh, very well, if you say so. And then the other one we see uh, what appears to be maybe the girl's face. The same one like licking her teeth and going. This is the video of the king of the teeth. And then later we get one where it's a voice. And I don't think this is a new character saying, please remember you're dealing with the human form. That's the only like dialogue. I think outside of singing in this, you know, that's discernible. And speaking of singing, we get this strange scene of a bust of a woman kind of from the shoulders up uh, that singular bust. It's half a bust. It's developing. It is one boob. We see some internal organs. We see the one breast, which breastfeeding immediately comes to mind, right? The one breast out. And there's a sort of grotesquerie <laughs> Khalil, to the blood think, veins in the brain. Yeah, I was about to say, Khalil, I think that whenever, like, the one breast is out, it's removed from the clothes instead of, like, you know, remove the other bits of the skin <laughs> to remove everything else. But <laughs> that's called being moderate, okay? <laughs> And we get this weird shape. It, it could look like a, a fuzzy heart. Yes. Kind of like a scrotum. Uh, it, it is a red scrotum. And it spews uh, out these letters into the woman's head. While in background with the audio, we are hearing the distorted sounds of crying and calming. Which is presumably actually David Lynch's wife talking to their actual daughter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, I didn't mention it also, but earlier, in case you thought it was important for, I don't know, any reason, hey. the letter A had some pubic hair growing out of it with like a little white, white substance that then foamed outward and it became an orifice to birth more letters. Yes. Did I mention birth? Baby A's. Like it baby is the let lowercase. And the whole situation ends with the ABCs being repeated and the girl singing it and she's like, 
almost stop motion moving around the room and around the bed. When you see her eyes, they're like shifting around, kind of kind of sketchy looking. I don't know if we're more scared of her or she's more scared of the situation, uh, but there's fear in the room. I mean, maybe scared, but she's reaching out for the letters. She's almost trying to grasp them. And the last ending of the alphabet song that she is singing, please tell me, tell me what you think of me. Which is the words. I, I could have sworn Cleo is, next time won't you sing with me? But it seems, no, instead it's, please won't you tell me what you think of me? And maybe it's just an older version that we're not as privy on. Maybe, maybe not, but it's still horrifying. Still chosen very curiously. Yep. The last image we get, uh, as with a lot of David Lynch films, the last image lingers. We had the last one end with vomiting out violently. Now we get some good old classic blood spewing out of the mouth. Classic. So that's the alphabet. Yeah. A tale as old as time. There, certainly, uh, especially with the use of strawberry-based imagery <laughs> and the throwing of the seeds, if you will, it is certainly a story. I think it's a really natural bridge between, and I think this is totally accident, it just shows where Lynch's brain was at the time, but it really does work as a bridge between the alphabet and the grandmother. There's other projects that are happening around the time, so I'm not going to say this is like clearly the in-between, but yeah. you have the sense of almost fear of the human anatomy and the kind of d disgusting nature of it, oh. what it's capable of spewing out from the six men getting sick, but the planting, the seed, the child, the family, that sort of idea that's going to culminate more in the grandmother. No, it certainly feels like David Lynch using the inspiration of Denise's nightmare. It's, it's be very concerning if he fully assumes that this little child is having nightmares over what is implanted by people, if you will, into someone such as a young girl as they grow up to make things such as the babies and sort of be almost torn by it and bl blown away by what it is, what is pushed onto this being. I'm going to give now from the explosion of the head, from the use of please tell me what you think of me mm -hmm. as well as the woman says, please let me remind you. I'm paraphrasing here, but remind you that you are dealing with the human form. It's almost feels like it's a cautionary tale for the child, which depending on the age of the child, eventually will start approaching puberty yes. and have to deal with these sort of things more directly. Yes. It, it does raise a lot of questions in that regard, especially since you have a full grown woman pretending to be the child, the child's age is, more curious. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give David Lynch a lot of credit here and say that a lot of people want to look, I think, at films like this, either by Lynch or others, and ask themselves, like, what happened in the life of the creator? Like, did Lynch have nightmares like this as a child? And try to start to armchair psychoanalyze this guy. Okay. I'm going to give Lynch a lot of credit and say that I don't believe that his more disturbing films reveal that David Lynch has like some secret neuroses or um, terrible mental struggles any more than most people. Like it's fun to do like psychoanalytic theory. I'm all on board with having a good time with it, but I don't think that's like the answer. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's again, fun to talk about it, but at the end of the day, I think Lynch is more than his films. So I think Lynch is fully capable of recognizing maybe a feeling he's had or a feeling someone he knows has had and playing around with it, and mm. it's not the whole picture. Like, Lynch, from what I can tell, and I have to I have to dig through more of his biography, at some point I'm thinking during the next few months, I want to listen fully to, I have the audiobook of 
Room to Dream, which is like this biography on him. Okay. I want to get more into that and start really doing my research on his background. But from what I remember of starting that book back before I dropped it, he didn't really have a bad childhood. He wasn't like the child of an abusive home or full of nightmares. There's things from his childhood he will draw on in his films. Growing up in like the 50s and 60s sort of era, he'll bring those things in and he'll bring in certain flashbulb memories. But he lived a pretty decent childhood from what I can tell. Good for you, Lynch. So I don't think this is a sign of someone who's deeply disturbed. Lynch is actually a rather calm individual who, again, is like full of meditation and good vibes. Yeah, it's just that his mind can go into the place where I do not think good vibes belong. But the fact that we can recognize that darkness, I think Lynch is tapping into something that most other people have too. Mm -hmm. He just has a really good way of articulating it. And drawing that out from us. He has a way of articulating it. As someone who's not experienced some things before, I will let... I have never birthed a child. I've I will give you that one. I've never birthed a child uh, <laughs> either, so... I'm sure I've been a baby squealing at one point. I can relate to that aspect. Yes. I felt fear at some point. Maybe. Um, have you ever been a dot before? Like a black, white, or red dot? Uh, a couple times. A couple times, okay. Mm -hmm. You ever repeated yourself? Ever done, like, repetition before? Um... Sometimes, sometimes. You ever felt fear about mundane facts? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think then uh, the alphabet does describe you in some ways then, mm. looking at all this together. Mm. I like we went from armchair psychoanalysis on Lynch to you for yes, some me. reason. Weird me. turn that that just the took. The singular person involved entirely with that. So I think there's a lot of connections you can make between six men getting sick and this with repetition, the human form. Uh, birthing imagery with the grandmother. I think Twin Peaks also has that sort of element of, again, repetition. Yep. Anything else that you thought was worth noting for a theme, style, or connection with I, the alphabet? I mean, as per always, black, white, and red. That 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 is something constantly used inside of this, especially most notably with the strawberry. Now, do you take that as a stylistic limitation that those he was operating with a limited color palette of what the film could actually develop. So he chose to make it very limited in colors to suit that. Do you think it's directly a metaphor like black, white, and red each mean something? Or do you think the guy just likes black, white, and red? No, I think that it's more importantly, if I may guess, David Lynch likes contrast. He likes mm -hmm. seeing things that would have a vicious amount of difference in it. The fact that black and white are the most contrasting things of all, but then splash on some red, which is going to pop especially inside of it. No, I think it's just pleasing to work with for him. I'll actually back you up with that with a quote that I found. So Lynch said, quote, a certain amount of black will allow you to do a little bit of color. I like color. It's just that if it gets too busy, it holds you on the surface, and that's what I don't like. So there's more of that idea that when he's using the black and white, he can tap into something below the surface, so to word it. Okay. And you see the sort of black, white, and a little bit of that red in his next project, The Grandmother, which is in 1970. So again, two years later is a gap. Mm -hmm. One of Lynch's friends, Bushnell Keeler, who is, again, in Lynch's life, one of those big, like, life-changing figures. A story that, well, uh, a story for later. He recommended that Lynch check out the American Film Institute. And after the success of the alphabet, AFI granted Lynch the money to make the grandmother. It started off at $5,000 and then moved up to $7,200 by the end of the budget. So to go from, you know, operating costs of a few hundred dollars to now working with about $7,000, the grandmother was a much bigger project, not just in terms of length, but also production value. Lynch once again was painting the walls of his house black. <laughs> Mm -hmm. to set for the filming. So a lot of this is shot within his own home. Purposefully made 
that dark. It's not like faulty lighting or something. This had more money put into it, actually. <laughs> Lynch said, quote, there's something about a grandmother. Should I do Lynch voices or should I not? Do it. Do Go it. For it. Not going to promise it's going to be good. Ah. There's something about a grandmother. It can't. That's not how he sounds. It we, sounds better we, we than listen, mine. I'm parakeet. We listen to him talk so much, I should know this. Angelo Badalamenti. Angelo Badalamenti. Angelo Badalamenti. Well, I... There's something about a grandmother. It came from this particular character's need. A need that the prototype can provide. Grandmothers get playful. And they relax a little. And they have unconditional love. And that's what this kid, you know, conjured up. So that's what an imitation of David Lynch has said. Yes. The music in The Grandmother was provided by a local group called Tractor. This is also the first time that Lynch worked with Alan Splett for sound design. They spent about 63 days together recording all the sound effects okay. for this particular film. And I think it paid off. I think the sound effects are one of the most notable things about this. That That's a statement. And you can't say that about a lot of movies where the sound effects are the big thing. Uh -huh. uh, your cat, Stella, was really enjoying the sound effects of the grandmother. Oh, she was very, uh, we'll call it engaged. She was literally, and i never seen your cat do this, literally standing on the table looking at the TV for like minutes, actually engrossed, or just coincidentally staring blankly. But I like to believe <laughs> engrossed in the audiovisual experience. Yes, and gross it. A bit unusually, none of the actors from The Grandmother ever work again in a Lynch production. As far as I can tell, and as far as I can tell from IMDb credits, it's possible that they've worked with Lynch on like a super obscure short film, but again, it's not big enough to be listed like IMDb. Mm -hmm. So no major reappearance of these actors, whereas most of these short films, someone comes back. Yes. When it came time to show the short film at AFI in Washington, D.C., the head of the AFI at the time found that after all the films had been categorized, Lynch's The Grandmother was the only one that he couldn't really put in a category. Like, <laughs> what what genre would you call The Grandmother? Why? What? If you were tasked with putting it in a category, you'd create a new category called Why and put it there as the only yes. thing? Okay. It's not a bad Why. It's just a curious Why. I would... I guess it depends on what the options were. If I had to pick one, I would give it a horror label, probably. If I had to pick one genre... I would say it's horror to me more than anything else, hmm. more than a drama, a comedy, an action. Again, I would need to know what all the options are. I mean, if surreal is an option, I'm taking that. But I mean, drama is probably the more closer if we put together the themes and what happens throughout it. Yeah, it's the difference between the story and themes are drama. The effect might be horror for some people. What effect? What effect would you ever be talking about? Enough of an wait, effect. Wait, sci-fi. Enough of an effect that the <laughs> film won awards at festivals in Atlanta, Bellevue, and San Francisco, and it earned Lynch and Splett acceptance into AFI's Center for Advanced Film Studies. Good for them. Nope. Happy where they went. Cheers. Congratulations. This film is very well put together. So, Professor, since this is a little bit beefier of one, do you want to help walk us through... What is in this well-put-together film? Well, clearly, uh, now this is a point in which I am caught with obligations, so I'm just going to go ahead and here we go. Dig, 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 dig. Uh, shake a seed, shake a seed, plant, plant. Okay. Now, uh, I'm sure that uh, maybe from three to five days, we'll have a grandmother who can do this for me. Professor, I'm taking that as a sign that uh, you would rather have me describe this one. I'd rather have the grandmother to describe, but if we don't want to wait the three to five days, I guess you can go ahead and do it. Is that how much time you think passed in this? Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. So, again, looking at how the long basics does it take to grow plot, a grandmother? Basics of plot. 
you've got this mother and father character. I'm going to call them man and woman who are appearing out of the ground and they have a child. And mind you, this is very stylized. There's oh, like yes. a me- mechanical sort of mouth-like item that sort of like spews out. You this... thought it was mechanical. That's interesting. I thought it was very biological. No, the sound is heavily mechanical. It's mm. just moving and whirring and it's ejecting the fluid in a non-biological way. Interesting. And the way that it sort of like fills up and foams up the, what I would imagine to be semen and these beings to come out of the mm-hmm. semen to be shot up foam style, similar to the alphabet that we saw with the letter A sort of sure. beginning to foam. <sighs> Shooting upwards, we have our two creatures. Man and woman. Man Making and woman. animal noises. They got their faces like bound some way. Yes. So like the mouths are kind of almost caught in the wire it almost seems like they look like jeff the killer uh with the overall weird blackness david lynch invented the creepypasta yes and as they're sprouted from the ground they begin to i think it's have the sex they're doing very intimate repetitive movement they're having very very uh intimate petting back pats Yep. And then they sort of freeze on a kiss, which is notable for something that'll happen later. Yes, uh, and so with the combination of more semen and blood, we get then sprouting off to the side a small child. Now, curiously enough, in the way that it's shown in the sort of abstract stylized element, it's almost like... What is it like, Leo? It's almost like the woman was created from the man, like Adam and Eve style, because when you look at the way it's it's designed, the man is first created, then a tube extends from his well of white liquid to fill up hers. Yes. So it's almost like, again, she's being created from him. Mm-hmm. I'm taking the Adam and Eve approach. Otherwise, it goes the incest route, mm-hmm. that they're like from the same DNA, DNA pool. What is a rib other than foamy semen? And the child then appears... A lot more abstraction starts to happen. What I will say then is the child appears and shoots like up to the ground where they're at. Limply. Limply. The man sees the child. The woman starts kind of almost, I'm imagining, pleading. And the man pushes her and he stomps over to the child on the ground. So, so hard of pushing. I'm pretty sure her plosive. Bam! No, that was about the amount of force that went into it as he attacks onto him. Almost as if like this sheer existence or the appearance yes. and being of this child is so infuriating to this man. Lynch at this time has a four-year-old daughter. Anyway, continuing. Yep. What's really curious, I think, is the fact that the mother does it first protest. At least that's the way I'm reading her emotion. Which it- show that she did have a protection over the child at the beginning, and that the father immediately, the man immediately saw it as a threat or a thing to attack. It's a heavy amount of sound that sort of almost borders on things like dog sounds. Yes. In which the male figure ends up barking profusely, and while the female figure ends up whimpering off to the side, almost chasing her own tail at one point. I read this film as being very, very abstracted to the point where... I think we're dealing with like multiple representations of reality, none of which are necessarily real. What I mean by that is that I think this is meant to be interpreted much more thematically and in terms of mood more than literally. So for an example of that, after this sort of attack from the dad to the fully grown child, it's not a baby. It's literally this like, I don't know, seven year old. We're going to say eight year old. I don't know how old the kid is, but not a baby, right? So it's not literally he was just born and the dad attacks him, but it treats it like he, he sees this thing as a threat, goes 
goes after it. Then it goes back to the abstract, like two dimensional art piece and the kid shoots up. Then it cuts back and the mom and dad are like searching the ground. Like they're looking for him and they then cut back to the art piece. They shoot up and join him in what now looks like this black apartment. So it's like they go from one reality to another to follow where the kid's going. Mm-hmm. I interpret the black apartment as largely being a representation of the child's mind. That is in no way an authoritative way to read this. You could interpret it as a literal apartment. Mm -hmm. I just think that the way he goes up into this and the parents like follow him, I do get a sort of metaphorical location out of this, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, plays into things as time goes on here. Mm -hmm. A repeated element that the boy has is that he tends to wet the bed with an orange looking liquid. When we calibrated our screen properly, it was still an orange looking liquid. Uh, was it truly calibrated enough? Now, the, also the audio cue, in case you're worried it wasn't bedwetting, they played this sort of trickling stream sound effect so you know it's bedwetting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he looks down towards where like one would traditionally wet the bed. Now, what percent sure are you that it's urine? I am... Very, very positive, 100%. I am going to meet you for 98%. Not good. Uh, 2% of me wonders if it's not accidentally something else because later on when he's going to be seen, the boy's going to be seen eating this like meat, like meatloaf or steak or something. There's like an orange liquid on it. And to me, it's like, is that ketchup? Therefore, orange equals red. Therefore, he's bleeding in the bed. But I think everything else shows that it's urine. No. So I'm on team urine. Now, nah, man, uh, that is what we like to call a uh, food sauce, if you will. Some del- sweet, sweet, delicious food sauce. Do you put mustard on your steak? No, I didn't say mustard. I said food sauce. You wouldn't understand. You don't eat food. And the dad didn't understand either because he shoved his kid's face right in the food sauce that he wetted the bed with. Yeah. <laughs> he pushes his face inside of it, almost very degrading. Like, I, I've i seen individuals do this, though I do not fully agree with it, in which the pressing of a face of almost like an animal into the spots, like, see what you did, mm-hmm. almost to try to detract the situation, despite the fact that... You're referring that, more to, like, pets then, right? Yes. Because you said He's you've treat- seen this happen. I'm assuming not to real children. Yeah, not to real children. Probably should report that. Yeah. Yes. It's not, not a good thing to do. Yes. 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 You know who you are. Anyway. There's also a scene then afterward, in case you thought the mother was, like, the better parent here, and maybe she still is marginally, but she has her own problems because there's a scene where the boy is over next to her. She calls him over. She's kind of, like, pointing with her finger to come over, and he won't look at her. He won't have anything to do with her. She tries to go in for a kiss. He's pulling his face away, at which point she starts to shake him. Yeah, no, she is heavily trying to almost fawn over him, but less as a child and more like an object. There's some nice visual storytelling that goes into, say, for example, the father sort of just more so letting his limbs sort of fly around, Um, not very literally, but just sprawl out on something like a chair while taking a drink, not really taking much care other than passing the time through his misery. The mother just obsessed with objects, if you will, obsessed with appearance, uh, throwing curlers into the hair and just making sure that she's well-dressed and well-to-do. Meanwhile, the child... I reject a little bit of the assumption that she's obsessed with dress. I think that she's... What makes you think she's obsessed? Mainly because of just the overall, I would say, 
it, there's this weird feel that she has while working with the curlers inside of her hair. I think she's almost, no more obsessed with fashion than the dad's an alcoholic for drinking. Yes. And, if, and if you take I one still, to be extreme, then maybe they're both extreme. I do find them to be extreme, especially with the stance of the child. The child mm -hmm. is dressed up specifically in a suit. Now, this is notable because one is a man inside of a white shirt close to a white beater. One is a woman in a nice little floral dress. But inside of a suit, a suit portrays something that there is an expectation for you. It is you're at a wedding or a funeral. You're at a wedding or a funeral. You were supposed to behave. You were supposed to make sure that you keep tidy. You have to make sure that everything is good and perfect with you because you cannot break this presentation. You don't wet your bed when you're in a suit. And every time he breaks the presentation that his parents want, if you will, either the father wanting very little issue to sort of pass by him or his mother to sort of fawn over him, but in a more aggressive matter, mm -hmm. it is met with a lot of abuse. Mm -hmm. And the mother's also taking it super hard too, because when the boy refuses to let her kiss him, she starts like rubbing her face very aggressively. And I'm interpreting that to be crying based on the whimpering noises that she's making. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a dramatized form of crying, but the tears aren't quite there. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a sort of visual language where I think you're supposed to interpret things as they look but it's not always represented in the way it's represented in reality. It's a hyper-reality sort of thing. Now, it's a good question, too, on whether or not the tears have dried up or if seeing scenes in the future with this person, mm -hmm. if they're crocodile tears. I think it's open. I think it's completely open. Mm. The boy, uh, obviously feeling the weight of both parents being either abusive, negligent, or using him, or just, again, inappropriately parenting him, he is sitting on the ed He's sitting on the side of his bed. His hands are on his face. It looks like he's like... What? Sitting on the head. Sitting so. on the side of the bed. His hands are in front of his face, and he's like, not in front of his, he's like on his face. He looks like he's in deep thought. And that is at the moment where he hears the sort of whistling from upstairs. Um, two ways to think of this. I lean pretty close toward the, the latter of the two. You could interpret that just at the right moment, conveniently when he was at a loss, this, this new figure enters his life out of just, again, coincidence. Or more likely, I think... Um, that his desperation for having a more comforting figure kind of brings the grandmother there. Mm -hmm. uh, not right away. He first has to plant the seed, but it feels like he gets an idea. He gets an idea. He gets a hope. He gets a thought, whatever way you want to word this. Yes. Where he hears this whistling, he follows it up the stairs, and he tracks it to the source, which is this bag of seeds. He starts shaking them until he finds the one that whistles back, and he plants that sucker. Waters it over the course of maybe a few days, plants maybe it a on few a weeks. Bed, mind you. Plants it on a bed. Yep, he pours a bunch of dirt on it, puts a seed in it. Hey, you could say he soiled that bed. It. He soiled. God, I just realized that that uh, double play. Yeah. I honestly don't think that's unintentional. He soiled the bed in his own bed in one way, and he soiled the bed for the grandma another way. Ah. Yeah. So... As days go by, it kind of repeats the cycle of the urinating in the bed, the father being aggressive with it. Which, mind you, that scene is cut over with someone leaning over into the piss with an unknown expression on their face. Someone? Yes, yeah, someone. You mean the child? It looks larger than the child. Really? Like, like maybe it's just the use of color and so on. Oh, I always, I always took that as being the kid. But the, the way that kind of the figure looms over, I wonder if there's something growing within the child, whatever mm. it may be, especially in observation to that, because it is probably one of the most horrifying scenes inside of it, and it's just a still image of someone looming over. See, it is a horror. Bed. It is a horror film. Then. Nah, it's still drama. 
still, 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 still a comedy, still a comedy Western. You have not acknowledged sci-fi. What is there to acknowledge? There's the so science. There's a, there's a dinner scene and the fiction. The dinner scene, and uh, they're at this table, and we see the man in the sort of white beater outfit drinking something, probably alcohol. There's dried out plants under this sort of lamp on the table. Mm-hmm. The plants seem to be dead, yes. and the lamp seems to be off. I take those two things to be significant for their relationship as parents and also their parenting style. Uh, there's some decay happening yes. here, and it's not quite as lively. The man and woman are eating the food, which yeah. doesn't look that great, now, and the kid you, is not having it. There's also the much more disarray onto the table. Lone Khalil, not like the plant is a little bit overshadowed by the plastic of the bread, as mm. if like someone trying to get to the bread is also possibly affected the matter at hand. Uh, the plates seem to be like steak, mashed potatoes, and some unknown green vegetable. And lastly, there's a tilted over can of Campbell's. There's no soup to be found. It's an Andy Warhol takedown. Mm. I don't think it is. <laughs> but um, the boy refuses to eat the food, looks nasty to him. And, the, of course, that prompts them to start yelling at him. And throughout the film, they yell, like, Mott at him is the way I hear it. Yes. Mott! Mott! And you could take that to be the child's name, the boy. I don't think of it that way. I think of it as, like, an animal sound. It almost sounds like the word mutt. I, I still think that like it for a is. Dog. I still think it is Mott, uh, but I don't think that it is like one for one the name of the child. It's I the do prequel think, to the applesauce brand. I think that it's, I think it is the use of just trying to get the attention of this child, if you will, and it's, it would be in place of his name because each time you put it in, the name would be called out to him. In one way, in mm-hmm. one form or another. Mm-hmm. Around this time, as this cycle keeps repeating and things keep escalating that seed grows into some sort of pod on the bed. Um, and this growth pod keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So like, it's almost like this termite hill on the bed. And then out from this is like a, there's like a cavity, a sort of like a dark, wet cavity that mm-hmm. then spews out this grandmother. Now I might be mistaken, Khalil. I think that the dinner scene that sort of in the eating and the trying yes. to eat happens just a little bit shortly after, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Because when we do get this figure, uh, this grandmother-like figure, and she pops out. Yes. And she's a little bit dazed, but the child runs down in this weird, like, animation style, grabs the favorite flowers that seems to Mm -hmm. be his one possession uh, that he gladly gives to the grandmother. Notably living flowers. Mm Mm-hmm. They like it seems like again, this is where something good begins to happen to yes. the child. It's where he's having a good time, just even like being generally around the grandmother. It's something very kind, and that's where I was going with this is that when you get to the dinner scene, it's kind of the culmination of things that have been going on with his parents, where we see him run up the stairs to go to the grandmother. And when he reaches a certain point in the stairs, uh, the parents kind of look up at him, they're kind of doing their barking more and more, and he just sort of screams and spews out this red, like. I'm going to assume it's blood, but like these red lines out of his mouth. Very much a sort of shout that happens. And then he retreats into the grandmother for like comfort. He goes back to that room, plops down on that bed. Now, after the couple of execution scenes that we see likely in the child's (laughs) head, because the parents do return later, I'd also like to metaphorical executions. He puts on the executioner hood and he kills the idea of them or the love for them in his head. Now, mind you, there's something very interesting that happens at the table. For all the grandmother scenes that we see directly with the child and the grandmother, there's a sweetness to them. There's yes. something that is very kind and good to them. Like candy. But at the dinner scene, 
we have the father figure and the mother figure just yelling, 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 mm-hmm. but almost in like a distorted like whistle, very similar to how the grandmother whistles. Uh, there's an uh, like a faceless person in the dark with a similar dress to the grandmother pointing at him, and it gets more and more intense inside the chaos. I'm assuming that the grandmother that we do see is possibly either a based onto another grandmother or but visually would be the same grandmother. We watched this twice together. I have no memory of what we're talking about. No, there's literally someone in the dinner sits, scene, like at the yep, table, stands right in front of them. You don't see the face and points straight at the child intensely as all these wild bots go in the background and the whistling is added. I just remember the mother and father. No, nope. there's also that additional, like, faceless woman, who I assume to be the grandmother, but how the grandmother would be as opposed towards the fantasy of the grandmother or what one grandmother's actions would be. So I ended up showing you, I couldn't unfortunately show off the audio quickly for good pace or elsewise we'd have to get everything hooked up again. But I'm very certain with the combination of the auditory sounds as well as the dress that is used, but the fact that also the face was very hidden, um, I do, I'm very confident that this is the grandmother. And I am very confident it's not. Um, I remember just, I remember when it was happening, hearing the voices of the mother and the father and the pointing I remember associated with the mother's voice, the woman, and the dress that she's wearing has that sort of floral print the same way the mother's dress does. So mm. unless I'm mishearing something or misseeing something, uh, I think we're just going to disagree on this one. Very well. So viewers, I'm, I'm curious if you end up checking out the grandmother's particular scene. Is there a dark figure of the grandmother or another woman at the table? Or is there just the mom and the dad? How do you interpret that? Mm. Either way, there's someone whose face is obscured by darkness. Yes. Which is a very curious and direct choice. Mm -hmm. Especially with the overall heavy white makeup and red Mm -hmm. mouth that we've been seeing, especially in the scene. Either way, the grandmother he knows is usually very much sweet like candy, as I was saying. And so when he goes up there disgusted by eating his parents cooking, he instead goes up and munches on some candy. And the grandmother also lets him wet the bed, it seems like, as much as he wants. Because mm-hmm. for the rest of the film, basically, we see him stewing in his own juices in that bed. Yep. So there's a sort of interesting element where, obviously, the parents are bad parents. But the way in which the boy is seeking the grandmother, it's not just for comfort. It's also for a freedom that seems to be totally unrestrained. Where, you know, he probably shouldn't be eating candy all the time and wet in the bed. But he's getting away with it. Mm-hmm. Not much of a happy medium, really, in this kid's life. Nope. We get this weird scene then where the grandmother and the boy are together and they start like poking each other on the shoulder. Yep. Which I take to just be like a cute little like acknowledgement of each other and kind of like playful affection. Yeah, basically. You're there. You're real. You're here with me. They then go in for a kiss on the mouth. And when they do that, time like freezes. Yep. At the kiss. Now, I don't interpret this to be sexual, but I think if you want to interpret it that way, it is valid. Yep. I just don't interpret it that way. I think the fact that it froze on the kiss, it's not that the kiss was that long. So, Kalilus, that means that you're openly accepting that if we could, if we could, we could put the image of this picture on your laptop screen for you to take wherever you go, and no one will question it. I think that would be a strange thing out of context. Yep. Same way if I had a grandmother hugging her son and it's no one I know. And no, no, they know it's not me or my family. That'd still be really strange. Hmm. So I think that this would be strange. Yeah, but a lot of things from this movie would be strange to put as a screenshot. Mm, mm, mm. 
If I had a kid sitting in a bed where he peed himself orange, yes, would that be better? Um, I don't think so. But at the same time, the example that you brought up, like say for example, two hugging each other, someone could be all outright just like, "Oh, that's sweet. Is that yours?" As opposed towards them with their mouths touching and in that locked moment, I'm pretty sure people would look over and quickly keep moving quickly. So do you interpret the kiss as being sexual? I find it to be something that is a good shorthand for someone being engaged in something, especially in a potential person or what seems to be a person. What kind of engagement do you think these two have? This engagement is... Very up to interpretation. What's your interpretation, Professor? My interpretation. Put you against a wall here. Let's finish off this tale, okay. and then I can give you interpretations, okay. because okay. that's important. So we cut to the grandmother, uh, or a visual representation of her, going around the sort of like half circle and moving rocks, or like moving earth, which seems to create a tunnel, a space where the boy can then descend into that hole, and then momentarily afterward, we see from that spot where the rocks had been moved, where the boy had descended, there comes this branch of like, not a branch, a trunk of a tree, a big old emerging tree limb. Uh, it grows in between the grandmother figure and this scrotum looking pod that's across from her. Yeah, a lot of scrotums. The tree then extends sort of a branching faucet of that like shoots out the yellow liquid, the mm-hmm. orangish liquid. Mm-hmm. And also at the top, there's like a little like um, cavity, like a little cavity, kind of like the grandmother's birthing hole. And that don't say that. That's what it is. It births her. Don't say that. And the, so the faucet thing shoots out a white squirmy, and the white squirmy goes into the hole, and then births out of the tree cavity that where the where the boy had fallen, is is a fluttering thing, and the fluttering thing. It's very dark in the next scene, so I'm gonna assume it's the same thing. The fluttering thing then produces its own white squirm, which enters something I can't see. It has two branching arms. And then there's a sort of snail growthy thing that shoots mist. Obligatory TV calibration comment. So what do you make of this? Uh, I make of it that there is something being <laughs> born out of the levels of comfort that the child is engaging in, falling into something of his own piss. It's nice, it's warm, it's familiar, and it seems that maybe his father has pushed him into a habit of maybe even enjoying uh, being surrounded by piss, if you will. That is, that's a lot. It's a lot. So, beyond that statement, this overall, I would say, process the child has gone into is something he's quite fond of and it has made this bird-like creature that flutters away that could be a sense of potential escape I, I interpret more insect-like than bird. Bird sect is able to escape. I was going to try to do the opposite. It was like insect bird. It was like, eard. In bird. And I was like, that doesn't really work. Eard. Uh, the eard ends up flying off uh, and eventually lands and... It would really depend on what is being latched onto. That's the hardest part of this film is sometimes trying to see what is going on and what pieces are there. Yeah. So there's some missing pieces, not because they're not there, because we literally can't see them. (laughs) All this lovey-dovey sentimentality between the boy and the grandmother is enough to make anyone choke up. And that's what the grandmother does. She starts to choke. Choke. And we 
Desperately hearing a sort of desperate, high-pitched whistle noise start to go into a panic. Yep. The boy doesn't know what to do. He's so desperate, he goes down to talk to the man and woman, his parents. And at first, they look at him sort of with dead eyes. They won't budge to help. But then they start, like, laughing at him, like, openly laughing at his situation. And when the boy goes back up, we don't see it happen, but the boy is looking into the room and something thuds. Presumably the grandmother thudding. Mm. And the next scene we get to, nearly to the end, the boy goes to this sort of cemetery out in the field. And instead of a tombstone, he finds where his grandmother is like sitting. Which is in front of tombstones, mind you. I'm going to assume it is a tombstone. The place has been overtaken by nature, mind you. Which, honestly, kind of think about it, is not only a strange sight for like a cemetery, but I almost kind of wish that there was more sites like this for a cemetery. Like with nature, you are returning to instead of something very well trimmed. So... That's a personal opinion from the unplugged professor. I take it to mean that the grandmother did die in the room. She choked. She died. But that when he sees the tombstone, when he sees the part where she was buried, that's where the death actually sinks in. So the idea of his grandmother being alive, he truly understands she dead. she's dead now. Like, it didn't hit him until this moment. And we see that reflected by the way that her head falls back and the boy screams. Yes. So I think she literally died in the room. But his idea of her, the fact he realizes she died now. That is a potential response, yes. That is one way to interpret it. Then we get the most cryptic, I would argue, seen in the whole movie somehow, is the ending where the boy lies down on the bed and then very quickly rolls over. It's like shown twice. And we see this lingering shot at the end of the boy like half off the bed, his arms stretched out near Christ pose, and there's something overlaid on top of him. I don't even know the words to describe what it is. And the only other movement you see in this otherwise still frame is at the top, there's like these two branching tendrils that go a little bit down the screen and then stop. And that is the end of the grandmother. Now, whether the cycle may continue or not, and the overall usage of branching holes filled with white stuff uh, can be taken from that portion. I do take the grandmother to be the most chewable part of the film. Uh, called the, grandmother the grandmother character? Yes. Okay. Because the use of whistling, the way that the grandmother is sort of produced, how the child sort of treats the area with the grandmother, as well as the wildness of the death, the grandmother literally is running back and forth wildly across the room, uh, whistling like hell. Or heaven. No, whistling like hell. That is the whistle of hell. May I propose to you... No. That this I'm is... I'm not eligible. I'm not looking for that kind of commitment right now in my life. That this is... The grandmother, the aesthetic, the overall goodness of the grandmother is just an overlay for something as simple... Maybe as a fantasy, but maybe a fantasy, I would say, almost around a bird. A bird? Mm-hmm. Like Big Bird? Um, well, she is a big bird if we take, like, literal sizes here. But no, I, I don't think it's too large of a bird. I think that we are seeing a dramatized version using the child's imagination, which is quite vivid from what we've seen multiple times. But I do find this to be not only the use of communication through the bird, but the way that the 
the grandmother is planted and brought in. I, I, I find like the use of like trying to find the right seeds mm -hmm. and trying to plant and foster that. The way that I'm seeing it, and the seed is especially large, I see it as a potential either egg or potentially like working to a bird, if you will, working towards that sense. So maybe he is fostering this bird. Maybe he has ended up saving up and arranging for this bird. But it's a bird that does remind him very closely, almost symmetrically, to his grandmother, one reason or another. And I'll, I'll raise you another option, too, with your bird hypothesis is that it could still literally be a seed, and that if we take it being reality filtered through imagination in how the grandmother is portrayed as a film, is that he could have planted a tree or taken care of a tree, and then when the tree grows bigger, a bird lands on the branch or something, and he could have got his bird through a literal tree, because birds do be likened trees, IRL. Yes. So in terms of the basic plot being that there's a mom and a dad a kid who wets the bed, he finds comfort in a grandmother who then dies, and then something happens to the boy at the end. That's that's the shortest version I could delineate, right? Yeah. And the child is basically being neglected slash abused at home. Yeah. I, I can only imagine that it is either an imaginary grandmother or a bird simply because of the responses that the parents do sort of give off, which is almost like chiding, laughing. Because if that was the literal parent uh, upstairs, uh, that may put on a further bad tone on right. the parents. That's the curious thing, though, is that it's not a grandmother that's shown to be connected to the parents. It's a grandmother that's created by the kid through the tree, through the bird, not bird, um, earth pod thing he made out of the seed. It's because the parents sealed her away long ago. So I just think it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's like a grandmother that's been disconnected from the family lines of either the father or the mother in the situation. I think the particulars are not like there. I don't think there is a more clear singular interpretation to be had here. Mm -hmm. It's as literal or metaphorical as you want, but I think the actual like basic story is pretty clear. Mm -hmm. It's just the specifics of, you know, how it all works that could be endlessly debated. Yes. So in terms of like the writing style, I know Lynch mentioned in his little interview thing that he had like an eight page script, obviously like no dialogue per se, but just lines of what was going to happen. What did you think of how Lynch constructed the story? Well, I don't say that there's no dialogue. I say that there's dialogue we just don't hear. Between the grandmother talking and the child ah, making the, words. The inaudible dialogue of the lips moving. Yes, because the, David Lynch didn't mention that there were words in his intro. Did he? He said that there were words, whether or not they were it was dialogue words or if it was just, oh, there are words written on the page. Yeah, there's words to say what the directions of what's going to happen. Yeah. I think he was meaning more the idea of stage directions and what was going to be physically happening to move the story along in terms of actions, not dialogue. And I think that's likely, but I don't think that's fully confirmed. In your heart of hearts, do you think that there was specific wording that was being spoken inaudibly between the grandmother and the boy in that one particular moment? Yes. Do you have any guesses what it was? No. Do you think we're meant to guess? Yes. So should we guess? Mm -hmm. Like it's it's something in which whether or not someone does outright guess it, the scene only changes as much as what you believe they are to say. I mean, given the emotions that precipitated it or during it and after it, I would say it's more words of affirmation and love. Like, I don't think the, the grandmother was like, you could save 15% or more in your car insurance by switching to Geico. 
One, I, because of the chronology this came out you know, in the early 70s, 1970 to be exact. And also, secondarily, because I don't think that would make sense in the moment. Well, that's correct. This was, uh, Geico was established in 1995, so. Probably um, not going to match up. Or it's the inspiration to create the company. You had to have a stop the pod to you to research that. Yes. Do you feel happy about yourself? Very. Do you feel happy about how David Lynch made the color and lighting of the grandmother? The, 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 the show, the, the, the video, not the person specifically. No, I think that it's the same statements that we said before. Deep contrast met with a little splash of color seems to be a very large stylistic choice from David Lynch. I feel like we touched upon a lot of the stylistic elements as we talked about the events themselves because it's one of those cases where the style is so linked to the narrative. But were there any other stylistic elements you particularly liked, didn't like, or just thought were really interesting about the way it's written, the visuals, the audio, anything that stuck with you? Um, I think that most certainly the appearance of the art of David Lynch mm-hmm. is something very striking and very unique inside the film itself. The other portions of it, again, I think that I would see more and more in the future, but I'm surprised that I have not kind of seen instances of David Lynch's art. All You're surprised? Much. Yeah, I'm surprised I haven't seen more instances of the physical art of it. Mm-hmm. I think that... It does give forward a mood into all the setting. And maybe, maybe, I don't know, handled the map inside of Twin Peaks. Like, you know, the map of, say, for example, the area that is around it with the overall markings of it. But the sheer chaos of that is probably the closest thing that I can think of, of some of the sheer chaos that we mm-hmm. do see with, say, for example, the field and alphabet, or whenever we see the wild appearance of the sun plant mm-hmm. piss grandmother. How, how much are you into like visual arts and painting and sculpture work? Like that sort of stuff. When I come across them, I'm glad to see them, mm-hmm. but I don't personally seek them out. Right. So I don't think either of us are extremely well versed in that medium. No. Cause like the, the automatic like artist I go to for comparison with Lynch, because again, I have a limited like knowledge of painters is probably Francis Bacon mm-hmm. uh, as probably my go-to comparison point with some of the distortions and almost body horror yes. that I see Lynch exhibit. And that's, again, one of those things I want to do at a later podcast is talk about specifically the the visual art of David Lynch and the music of David Lynch, which we see glimpses of both within these short films, but it does exist on its own, obviously, outside film as well. Mm-hmm. I would almost argue that David Lynch's painting, it came first it was the first thing he loved, and it informs his filmmaking a lot. It's mm-hmm. almost in a sense that I wouldn't say he's more of a painter than a filmmaker. I don't want to say that. Mm-hmm. But I would say everything is viewed through that f- painting lens more than everything is viewed through the film lens, so to speak. Okay, uh, It's a pretty big deal for his creations. And I think, yeah, we see a lot of it in The Grandmother. Uh, I did put something in my notes that just says Silent Hill Time Baby. Um, <laughs> this, this is one of those works that I feel like had to have been an inspiration with Silent Hill, like early on. Um, I'm not saying that it's the only thing. I mean, there's definitely things in other Lynch work that we can pretty clearly point to as an inspiration, either in Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, Lost Highway, etc. But the grandmother feels like probably an unsung hero in terms of Silent Hill inspiration. Okay. Because the way in which everything is so dark and wet and moist 
and the fleshiness and plant-like nature of things. I think if you just do a little less plant, a little more meat, you got Silent Hill Hellscape right there. Okay. The way the execution hood falls on the boy and he's like killing the parent ideas, that's sort of like internal darkness executioner-style psychology really feels silent too. Mm. Really feels like Silent Hill too. Um, so I, I do feel like it's probably an influence. We know that Team Silent was influenced by Lynch. That's very well documented. Um, I just don't know to what extent it's been clarified, the grandmother's influence. Yes, and as someone who is unfamiliar with Silent Hill, I have... I could try to, like, think of instances from the small bits of media that I can, but it, I do think that I would really like to sometime check out that overall work. Uh, where would I find the documentary work? Just generally Google? Well, I mentioned them on the last pod, but that channel, Twin Perfect, they did a whole series on Silent Hill mm-hmm. called the, it's like the Complete Silent Hill Experience. I haven't watched it. I have a couple friends who got really into it back in the day. It's not perfect. Um, the people involved are not perfect. There's but some stuff going perfect. on with them. But not the yeah, I know, right? Mm. Ironing the title. Hmm. But they did a lot of extensive research that they went through those sort of influences like Lynch. Okay. So I know that's one source, but I think it's beyond that one source. It's been pretty well known. Very well. Interviews and such. Very well. As far as connections to other David Lynch work and Twin Peaks in general, um, we get more of that sort of idea of repetition, um, body horror kind of discussed, the parenting sort of anxieties, uh, the sort of lack of dialogue explicitly that's been a recurring theme throughout these shorts that are very non, I'm not going to say non-narrative, but not traditionally narrative. Okay. Even this one that goes on for like 40 minutes still is not a normal narrative by any means of the imagination. Okay. And then the main thing I think of, and this is very tenuous, I do think of the grandson and the grandmother in this, having some sort of link to the grandson and grandmother in Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. i.e. the Tremont chalfont pairing. Now, why are you saying that with a boy who is inside of a suit and a grandmother-like figure that's always around him? I'm saying that cream corn is yellow. I'm saying when you wet the bed, it looks like a color yellow. I'm saying that the boy's name is Pierre. He's a magician. And I'm saying that we see the name Pierre a couple times in other short films. I'm just saying... There might be something to the fact hmm. that, yeah, this super black and white room with a little bit of red kind of does give off a red room kind of vibe to me, a black lodge kind of vibe. Everything feels a little bit dreamy and surreal. Okay, so you're trying to say that it is not connected between Hank and Dick Tremaine, but it's more so the Tremaine boy and the grandmother. I'm going to go with a yeah. Okay. I'll go with a solid yeah. On that Very well. One. Following the grandmother's success, David Lynch shifted focus to his major work, the first film he would go on to make called Eraserhead. However, it was a long, arduous, and most pertinently expensive process for a fledgling young filmmaker. He ran out of money. He ran out of money is what I'm trying to get at. And while he was trying to locate funding for Eraserhead in this financial limbo, Lynch made what's called The Amputee. It is a short that would use to test two different film stocks, at the American Film Institute, and it was made in one day. I do enjoy the fact that the background, when David Lynch is talking about it, he kind of keeps <laughs> amping up like the fact that he was out of money, and then this opportunity came around where his friend was had to record with two different cameras, and David Lynch asked, was like, well, uh, can you record anything? It's like, well, yeah, I, I don't see why not. So my first thought... Like, well, listening to this, like, oh, it's a sweet little story. Like, the, the his friend helped him with his resource, and he got to shoot things in cool ways uh, with his new, f- like, his film Eraserhead. But no, no, it, it was just, like, he wrote up a script that day and then shot it, 
And it was done. And again, all the better for it, because now we have the amputee. Yes. So Lynch didn't write this on his own. He did co-write it with the main actor who plays the amputee herself Mm -hmm. by the name of Catherine Coulson. Does that name ring any bells to you? Sure it is, Khalil. So did you, I asked you during the watch, just going to double check now, put you on the spot on the pod. Did you recognize the amputee woman? I'm going to guess, but it's going to sound like an insult because like, it's, it, like I, I, I always feel like it's an insult. There's probably never is whenever I assume, oh, that person's that person. No, it's a completely different person. It's like, oh, well, hey, now the worst I'm, thing that can happen, I'm degrading their acting chops. Is you could be wrong. Go ahead. Fire away. Okay, fine. It seems to be the actress uh-huh. from my eyes yes. and from my mind, yes. which is not a reliable source. Ah, uh-uh, not at all. Nadine? No. Norman? No. Female Twin Peaks cute? Yes. yes. <laughs> it, it seems like it was Nadine, but uh, nah. that, but genuinely, uh, I'm unsure. Catherine Coulson played the log lady in Twin Peaks. Ah. I was assuming you might have picked up on it from the narration because you've heard her voice start every episode of Twin Peaks. I've heard her voice, but at the same time, I think that there's different candor. I think it's also that, that's maybe like 20 years to, have passed. That's why I was th- connecting it to like Nadine because I was thinking to myself, oh, like, okay, if Nadine didn't behave so nervously mm. and more neutrally, like it was, we got a scale from Nadine yeah. that was from nervous to ecstatic. So if I was saying like, okay, dial the scale right there, okay, yeah, it looks like that she has reddish hair inside yeah. of this shot. But yeah, no, I, I, I can't say that I see it because I don't have it in front of me. Can you check it out again now that you know that I think you'd be appreciating that knowledge? I would. Um, also, Catherine Coulson would go on to play the main character of the wife in Eraserhead. Hello, this is Khalil from the future. I have deepened my voice through second puberty, and I have decided to tell you that I made an error of vocalization. I may have said something along the lines that Catherine Coulson plays the wife in Eraserhead. This is false information. In fact, Catherine Coulson is the wife of Jack Nance, literally, and does not play the wife of the character of Eraserhead. Who plays the wife of the Eraserhead Eraserhead man? Stay tuned next time to find out. Now, the nurse. Did you recognize the nurse? This one's harder. This one is harder because you don't see the face. angle? You see the side of the face very briefly. I want to see your guesses for this. It is, I will give you the hint, it is someone who appeared in Twin Peaks. You don't have to know the actor. You could just say the character is fine. Uh, Is it the person who played uh, Denise Bryson? So you're interpreting this as a man in a nurse's outfit. I think that it is a person in a nurse's outfit. I can't tell if it is man or woman. Why did you go for that actor then? Because it looked somewhat like the chin angle. I feel like he'd be very, very young. This was made in 1974, right? (laughs) I don't know ages and what people are appropriately supposed to look like. Okay. Yeah, this is about (laughs) not quite 20 years apart, but still. Okay. Um, no, it is not uh, that particular actor. Very well. Any, other, any guesses? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Little Nicky. I don't I, know. I ages. feel like, <laughs> Professor, you're pulling my leg here. <laughs> Let go of my leg. Oh, no, don't. Wait, actually, don't say that. Why? I think there's an obvious reason that you don't say Oh, I say didn't even that. think of that. There we go. Oh, well, not, you're the one who thought welcome, of that. No, welcome. 
Khalil, welcome to what you have just said. Well, anyway. Anyway. Um, now you've ruined all the fun. <laughs> the role of the nurse is played by David Lynch. Huh. Yeah. It's hmm. David Lynch in a nurse's outfit with Catherine Coulson, the log lady. Farewell. Farewell. Yeah. I've never imagined Once it. you know it is, it's very funny to kind of catch the glimpses of the like side of the face. No, I never imagined them because we mainly see a, an older David Lynch. So I actually don't know what a young David Lynch That's looks true. like. I just assumed he was the same age forever. So last piece of information. Instead of Benjamin buttoning like little Nicky. Anyway. Last piece of information here. Uh, the scene, which we see twice, was shot with two different stocks of film. Uh, both times with no sound. Lynch had to add the sound later. Quote from Lynch, it was really cool because we couldn't shoot sync sound. So we shot it and then ran it back and fullied the whole thing live to picture. It was pretty exciting to do sound effects on the fly. What'd you think of that quote, Professor? Hey, when I said we're an ASMR <laughs> channel, Professor, I didn't mean it that literally. Yeah, no, that's... I, I do think that the sound design was a lot of fun. It yeah. seemed clear enough. And that's where I almost questioned just because I didn't know the technology of cameras at the time uh, and how, like, voiceover would work alongside mm -hmm. of it, what was recorded with it. I'll admit I'm very green when it comes to old film and old film techniques to the point that I even questioned to use, like, okay, just making sure... This is something in which, like, it's the same actress right there. This is something that has been dubbed over. Just in case, say, for example, someone's off camera and being like, this is the lines I'm reading. Because I believe that that is fully possible, especially with limitations. Sure, sure. No, it is the same. So, I do think that the sound design was very good, but I also do find the few choices in the sound design to be striking, but that's both good as well as uncomfortable. I think as I in this case, from. uncomfortable is good. Yes. That's the effect we're going for. It can be. Um, as, as someone who has not experienced uh, life as an amputee or any of this that goes on. I think I think one criticism you can continuously levy against Lynch that I think is very fair. I mentioned it once a long time ago on the pod. Okay. Is that Lynch likes to take people who look different or sound different and put them as a strange thing on the camera. Okay. He's done that with the man from their place being a man of short stature. Okay. He's done that with the one armed man. He's done that with the giant. You have this sort of situation of people who in some way look different. Even okay. the singer, Jimmy Scott from the red room, his vocal freak, you know, his voice is so different. Um, you could take that as a, as a bad thing. You could take that. He likes to do that in a way that's a bit potentially problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, but one thing you could say about those cases is those people are literally like that. Mm -hmm. there, there's no effects done to them. Mm -hmm. Catherine Coulson is not a double amputee. She, she has both her legs. Yes. So it's obviously a visual effect that's being done. And is that then offensive or not? I don't particularly think so. But I'm also not someone who's from that background. And I don't think that there's like a way to say what is okay to be offended by and what is not okay. I could see it as being potentially objectionable. And if that makes it so you can't enjoy the piece of work, that's fine by me. I get that. And I think that it's very notable throughout this piece. The nice overall calm performance brought on by the actress uh, as this person is moving and operating yeah. onto these limbs, though false they may be. As this story goes on in the background... But the story, I feel, hardly matters more than her overall reaction to statements both 
almost socially as well as physically for things that become too familiar to herself. There's a bit of a dual narrative going on here. The The main one that we visually see and hear in the sound effects is that there's an amputee woman who has a leg stump that has some sort of leaking going on with it. We see it like leaking into the bandage. A nurse comes around, drains the liquid out of the stump, but then the liquid just keeps on gushing Yep. to the extent that the nurse like quickly leaves, slams the door behind and doesn't return. The first cut of it seemed a little bit more calm in which it's like, oh, okay, well, I have to tend to this quickly move. Uh, the second cut just seems like the nurse is just outright escaping the area never to return again. The second cut just picked up a lot of loud noises more loudly. Yes. Uh, and, and that's also true for the way that the sound was of the gushing. Um, again, the sounds were done separately from the footage, so I don't know if that's an effect of the different stock they were using or the equipment they were using when they recorded it or what happened there. Yes. But the second one definitely seems more drastic, Very. which I thought made it funnier. Cool. I found the second one much more comedic. The first one much more dry and serious. <laughs> which stock did you prefer of the uh, the amputee? The first. The first? Yes, I think that not only was the camera that they ended up using seemed a little bit more stable at the time. Oh yeah, visually it looked better. But there's also just something which, like, it's a, it's almost calming into the mood until you're, like, slowly brought in. Just like, oh, oh, what what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, for how wild the second cut goes, as well as how long and just how pronounced the liquid sort of goes through, it's like you, you kind of, like, squint at the aftermath more than anything. Mm-hmm. Like, huh. You know, I, I guess I'm kind of the same way. I prefer the visuals of the first one. The difference is I liked the exaggerated sounds of the second one for comedic value. I'm glad we have both. Very well. Uh, You mentioned earlier that the letter does not matter that she's writing, and I agree with you. I'm going to still talk a little bit about it, (laughs) but I'm not going to go through everything because, like, the way it's written, it's very purposefully leaving out details and context. So you get, like, names thrown at you without really knowing their connection. The main thing is that she's writing a letter to presumably her partner. Could be a boyfriend. I think it's a husband. Mm-hmm. And she's writing, again, just my thinking. It's not for sure. And she's writing this letter, and a lot of it concerns this friend of hers named Helen, who's like her best friend, tells her everything. Helen's married to Jim, and there was some drama that went down at like a beach where there was like this outdoor cabin, and something went down that probably involved like cheating and people spreading like rumors and saying that the amputee woman's a flirt when she's not really a flirt. And mm-hmm. then at the end, it kind of ends ominously with her in the letter after the nurse left questioning what happened to this friend of theirs named Paul, where she's wondering, you know, talking to the fiance in the letter, you know, where were you there at 3 a.m. when he got hurt that one morning? So kind of question the idea that maybe her partner had hurt their friend Paul. Mm -hmm. The story itself, again, purposefully leaving out context, throws like six, seven different names at you. And it reminded me a lot of, and again, this is also where I don't, read enough to have a full repertoire here, but it reminded me a lot of Hemingway, um, and particularly like the Hills, like White Elephant story, mm-hmm. um, where you're thrown into a situation without enough context to have a concrete idea, but you have to read between the lines to get the mood of the piece. Okay. I think this has less of a literal likely answer. The way that Hills Like White Elephants has a more clear answer, I would say. This one I don't think does, but I don't think it's a stretch to believe there was some cheating happening. Mm. How far the cheating went... Maybe it was just flirting over some gin. Maybe it went further and there were some seeds planted in a bed, if you know what I'm saying. Yes. Yes. Strawberries. Alphabets. Some some scrotum hearts. Some some uh, some alphabets. 
So anyway, um, otherwise for style, we kind of talked about visual sound, the kind of the writing, anything else with the style of it that struck out to you? I mean, again, just generally the differences in performances between the nurse as well as the amputee, the overall use of the film grain. And again, the overall story that goes behind it, I think that certainly paints a well enough picture with it. No, I don't think that there's anything else I can really push onto this, but I still think I'm thoroughly impressed by what I've seen. Um, themes, again, it's a very short video piece of footage. There's some distrust in relationships, uh, cheating complications involving like communication. There's the sort of body, I don't say body horror, but the disgusting element of the body. And also along with that, the sense of the mundane, that cleaning out this wound is kind of this gross thing that she just lives with now as a daily thing, now, I presumably. Don't, now, I don't recall anything like disgusting of the human body. To in be previous? In, in previous. Uh, not previous for David Six Lynch Six men works. getting sick. I mean, like previous in David Lynch work. I thought we were connecting to, say, for example, Twin Peaks. Ah, anything. Okay. I mean, Twin Peaks, there is the sense of the people at the end, suddenly their arms start shaking. There's the uncontrollable physical ailment, but that's one isolated moment. Okay. I wouldn't say sickness itself is that big in the original series of Twin Peaks, mm -hmm. but I would say that the sort of sickness and grossness of like fluids and body stuff that's pretty apparent in the short films we've all seen so far. Yes. And then the last thing I thought was interesting was the sense of intensity, the difference between the calm narrating versus the intensity of the gushing. Yes. Uh, I think you could interpret that in a few different like metaphorical ways mm -hmm. of sort of the, almost the emotions of her letter that she's writing very calmly about things that she probably wants to write more violently about, but she's holding herself back maybe. Yeah. Like it would have be F you, you F and F F or F Efferson. Yeah. But she's like, dearest, dearest person, I think you misunderstand things. She's being very calm about it, but there's some emotion gushing out through an open wound, if you will. Yes. Now, Professor, if any of these short films wounded you... Uh, it definitely was uh, not the thing that we would usually talk about next. We'll go to the uh, very next thing and hopefully forget about the thing that was sandwiched in between. So 1988's Just... The Cowboy and the Frenchman. Yeah, dang Gosh, I was watching these with the professor and I was expecting him to react more strongly to these short films that are very creepy and abstract. I was respectful. He, I was analytical. I was focused. Then the cowboy and the Frenchman happened. And I'm ruined. He was having a very strong reaction. This is the one that I, I must have skipped on the DVD or just <laughs> blotted out my memories. Not sure what happened. I didn't remember this one. I'm certain it's the latter and I'm jealous. So I actually like this one. Mm. I, I'll, I'll be interested to debate that with the of professor Of course you here. would. So this short was released after Dune, after Blue Velvet, and like pretty closely before Twin Peaks. Yes, it is, it's in the realm of color. It was made for a French television series called The French As Seen By, dot, dot, dot. And Lynch had been asked approach to make a film, short notice, that would articulate his view on France. Yep. And the movie even ends, the film even ends with that, you know, this was France as seen by David Lynch. Yep. And when he gave this thing, this this 20-minute video to the guy who had asked for it, he made a reply, like, basically acknowledging he got two cliches in one. Because not only is it approaching what France is to David Lynch in the most cliche way possible, it's also turning American cowboy an Indian aesthetic into a cliche as well. Yeah. And the sort of weird merging of stereotypes. Yeah. 
Some notable things with the cast and crew. Yep. We got Harry Dean Stanton. Yep. Playing Slim in this. Yep. I'm going to list a few names here, Professor. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> so there's Harry Dean Stanton. You were laughing at when it happened in the movie. In the movie, and that was a different situation. <laughs> plays Slim in this, and he was Carl Rod in Twin Peaks, Fire mm -hmm. Walk With Me. The person who had the repetition. What is that? What? He's the one who kept repeating. He's like, what the hell? Yes, that's Harry Dean want, Stanton. I didn't want to insult all the actors by repeating, what I was the worried hell? you're... Oh, that's fair. That's fair. So Jack Nance uh, played Pete in this, who he also played Pete in Twin Peaks. And you're going to see a whole lot of Jack Nance throughout all of Lynch's films. He is the main actor in Racerhead, which is our next thing. Get ready for a lot of Jack Nance. Then there's Michael Horse, who plays Hawk in Twin Peaks. He appears in this as Broken Feather, the least problematic, least concerning element of this whole production. <laughs> and then lastly, I just happened to catch it in the credits, spelled wrong, curiously. Uh, the set director in this is Frank Silva. They spelled it F-R-A-N-C-K in this credits. But it's not normally. It's F-R-A-N-K. So he had been the set dresser for Dune, for Blue Velvet. Then later, Wild at Heart, he was the property master. And Bob in Twin Peaks. Yay! So we're getting four Twin Peaks familiar faces. One kept behind the scenes. Bob is... How does it make you feel knowing that Bob worked on this movie? I mean, again, he seemed like a pretty cool guy, Frank Silva, that is. I I don't see why I have to merge the person who did horrendous acts That's versus fair. the person who ended up helping so much I on I was just films. giving you fire to fuel with that this was made by Bob, that this is an agent of suffering. I was hoping I could give you that satisfaction of knowing this is a new way to get Garmambosia fast. No, screw that. No, he's a hardworking guy from what I can tell and doesn't seem like he's done things like Bob. Okay, okay, okay. Well, that's fair. That's okay, fine. You know what? From this point on, I'm going to see the actors that for all their horrendous acts, you know? Uh, never again will I see Jacques Renault in the same light again. So this film hasn't sullied the reputations of anyone involved. No. Writing, acting, directing. It no. didn't make you think of anyone in a less way. No, I mean, it certainly like makes me look at David Lynch and say, hey, hey. <laughs> but at the same time, it's it's hyperbole. So It is heavy hyperbole throughout the whole film for yes. everything. Story time. So it's, picture this. No. You're in the American Midwest mm -hmm. sometime after World War II. Trying to get out. And there's Slim. He is a hard of hearing foreman of a ranch. He's with yep. his friends, Pete and Dusty. He tells them to investigate because there's something strange coming down the mountain. A Frenchman. Well, they don't know it's a Frenchman yet. They're going to find it out later. Which, after they tie him up, after they start questioning him, they can't understand a single goddamn word the guy's saying. Especially since the one person is deaf, which is a character detail that for some reason was on a card at the beginning of the film. But and then, then he, he repeats it, it verbatim later. It's so good. Good what? comedy. What? I love that comedy. That, that's good a, joke. It, I don't, is it comedy? Yes. Why? The idea of they give you this information that's like very specifically worded to be memorable. And then when he says it later, you're going to make that mental connection. It's a little bit fourth wall breaky. It's kind of that idea that like the thing you read at the beginning, like 15 minutes later, the character just says it verbatim. It's Funny, I would not describe how or why. <laughs> I like that kind of humor. Very well. They then investigate the suitcase, trying to come up answers. So the three of them dig in through, and inside the Frenchman's suitcase, they uh -huh. find yeah. wine bottles, yeah. baguettes, uh -huh. a miniature 
icon of Eiffel Tower with a picture of an Eiffel Tower. Yep. Pictures and a plate of snails, among other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, among other things, it's only it's only like at this point they're considering that he is uh, some form of alien spy, like yes. off from somewhere. Russia has been brought up, uh, but no. As soon as they like continue to look through it, uh, look through this bag and so on, which things are being threatening. These guys shot a bird as soon as it made a flutter, shot a snake because it was just existing around. Uh, again, I think uh, that's and comedy. Said that they're going to shoot him. It's um, funny comedy. Then, as soon as they find French fries, yes, inside of it, it's like, oh, you're so a French you're, man. You're it's French so good. Fr- it's so good. It's, it's not French. I That's the joke. Not, I know it's the joke, but I feel like I feel like the jokes. I get that they are jokes, Khalil. I get these are humor, but it hits me so hard in the face. I feel like I get knocked down and I have to pick myself up again before it kicks Why me. Why does in the it stomach. have that effect on you? I it is. I don't know. Like it, at one form, it's just like okay, these are just. It's like the easiest sort of things to take from like yes. a stereotype. Yes, but they take. All of it. Yes. And uh, it hurts. I, I, see, it's interesting your reaction to this. How bad do you think this is? Like, do you think it's bad? I don't know. Cause like for me, I think it's lightly funny. I think, I think it's kind of funny. I, that's, that's my assessment of this short. Khalil, I, I think I need time to recover before I can even say how I feel. And that's about such it a dramatic reply where I'm just like, oh, I it's a funny little skit. I don't know how. If, do you, do you react that way when you watch like SNL? No. Okay. No. I don't know. It just to me seems like a skit. I think it's just kind of a funny little gag. It's just it's just epitomizing the stereotypes as much as possible. Maybe it's because for the most part, these skits end, but this keeps going. Yeah, it's this the keeps going for about like a I, twenty minute length. I don't think twenty six minutes. I don't think that's really the main thing though, because you were already reacting strongly in the first like five minutes. I was reacting. Yeah. If again, this thing would have ended short, you still would have it, had a strong reaction. It doesn't start lightly. No. I don't get prepared to go up the slope. It smacks you. Well, so you went down the slope the same way that Pierre went down the mountain. Pierre, you might ask, who is that? That's the Frenchman. Now, mind you, here's the fun part, Khalil. Inside of this DVD collection that we have here, there's no subtitles in anything. Except this. Yes. But even then, it's only when French is spoken. Yep. There's, there's like certain words that are mumbled. And, and they're not even the default hearing. on. They're not on by default. Nope. Instead, you have to either specifically choose the cowboy and the Frenchman to get this option. Yeah. Or. If you view all, it doesn't give you the option. Or you just like guess randomly and be like, you know what? Let's check this out. And then adjust. In like your pop-up menu. Inside your pop-up menu. Yep. If you have one. Yeah, it's, it's not the best in terms of user-friendly for distribution. I feel like when you hit view all, it should also have a message like telling you this. Now, of course, I find it great that as an American viewing this, it gets you a little bit lost in the moment. And there is, a, I believe, a value that goes to that. To but, not knowing the French. To not knowing the French. But then I think to myself, it's like, well, how large is the English-speaking audience in France to sort of look at these cowboys and have the reverse Probably bigger situation. than the American audience that knows French. Very likely, yeah. yes. What I will say, though, is that the main thing you'd miss out on with not knowing the French is Pierre's backstory. Because it turns out that Pierre had uh, gone to Manhattan and just found the most amazing, wonderful, colorful pills. 
Yep, and it was given to him by some great people, like all varieties of pills, and just eventually came across this ranch in maybe the Midwest. And we find out, so his name's Pierre, which again, put a pin in that. It's going to show up later. Never. It's also, again, the name of the Tremont Chalfont boy, Pierre. Yeah. So anyway, uh, he takes all these drugs, he wanders there, and we find out that this uh, American Indian, I'm going to use that term for here because they refer to him as an Indian, so I'm going to use American Indian as the term. I mean, no offense, there's a a lot of different terms for a wide variety of people from different, like, cultures and nations. So I mean, no offense in this term, it's just what I think is the closest to what the film is portraying. And there's this American Indian who's, like, following, and we find out later, so his name is Broken Feather, we find out later that he had been following Pierre for, like, a long time, stalking him, because he was worried that this guy we saw is, like, on a, like a peyote trip was going to, like, kill Slim's livestock, which I thought was a very funny background story. Which, like, multiple days, like, going after Slim. Multiple days I mean, following him in the background, making sure this guy doesn't do anything bad. Yes, which makes you wonder either, A, how long Pierre had been, like, on that farmland, or B, how much of a stake like this person was invested yes. in and betting. Which apparently, by a betting man, he has been quite fortunate. Yeah, just as long as he's getting paid back. As long as he's getting paid back. The whole $20. Um, yeah. And yeah. at first, they're all kind of confused about each other, but then Pierre learns, oh, the Cowboys no broken feather. They're actually friends with each other. So they all start hanging out as a group, the Cowboys, the Frenchmen, and the American Indian. They gather around the campfire. They drink. They uh, enjoy the company of women who they're flirting with. They sing a few songs. Yeah. Well, yeah, they enjoy the company of women, which I don't think any of them are the women who sing from the sky. No, they're not. Nope. The best element of the whole short for me is, is the three women singing in the sky to show the passing of time. Yep. It's a great way of showing time passing. One of them looks like she'll eat my face. It's great. She's the best one. She, the one like, on the right. Like, not like the sexual way, but not like the actually will eat my face. You take eat, eat someone's face in a sexual way? Some people. I Cannibals. That's who. <laughs> anyway, then the, the at the end of the fire gathering... Uh, Pierre, out of seemingly nowhere, has a giant Statue of Liberty that he, like, showcased. Giant by people standards. Statue of Liberty has been brought up multiple times, if you know French. Yeah. uh, Inside of this. Or turn on the subtitles. Yes. And to have the Statue of Liberty apparate into being here. Apparate? Yeah, apparate. What's that? Up here. Oh, is it a new word or a made-up word? No, apparate is a real word. Uh, I probably am using it correctly. Maybe not. Probably. But you're going to look. He's looking. You're right. It's a real word. Yes. Thank you. What the heck? Never heard of that one before. Learn Good French. Good job. Learn French. But yeah, no, no. Most notably, the Statue of Liberty was a gift brought in by the French to the United States to have a Frenchman bring in a miniature version of it. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Then the next morning... Thank you. They compliment each other's flapjacks and suitcases, and all is going well and dandy until there's a sudden snail from the suitcase droppings from earlier. Yeah, because snails are a weird thing. Like, it it, it scared uh, the individual that was chasing Pierre throughout the film. It It frightens all these sort of people that end up coming contacted that are the cowboys. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> this whole thing is mostly just a light comedy. Mm-hmm. Playing into stereotypes for humor. 
Yep. I will say, however... It doesn't play with it. it. It fully bathes with it. There's literally a transitional scene where we see cowboys, horses, jump around. We see almost an Elvis-like dressed individual uh, in somewhat cowboy attire singing away. I say plays with it not to imply lightness, but to imply the attitude toward it, that it's playful with it. If someone was playful and we imagine that playfulness was swimming, like swimming, uh, splashing, the pool is made of mustard. What? The pool is made of mustard. I don't understand. It is just thick. Oh, okay. It, you can smell it from a mile away. Okay. It's a I like pool mustard. of mustard. I like mustard. <laughs> you don't want a pool of it. Maybe I do. You will sink so, and die. So I actually have quite a bit to say about themes here. Um, I do think there's some things to read into this, whether it's intentional or not, that the way in which these stereotypes are the only foundation in which these characters can understand each other forms this weird sense of communication where not only there's the language barrier of French versus English, there's also the cultural barrier that some cultural items become kind of like shorthand positives. Like the moment they see the French fries, it's like, oh, he's a Frenchman. That's a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) But whenever the Frenchman gives him cheese, they like aggressively swat it out of his hand. It's like, that cheese gone bad. Whenever they see the snails, they're like, that's that's gross. That's disgusting. Maybe they just immediately hate it. Hmm? Maybe they, he slept by a creek. So it's weird then that like stereotypes form the primary basis for which they get to know each other, but also the basis in which they oppose each other. And like an example of that that kind of stands out to me is when they're at the fire And Harry Dean Stanton's character, Slim, is repeating over and over again the ooh-la-la while the Frenchman, Pierre, is saying the yippee-ki-yay. And they're just, like, having camaraderie by yelling each other's stereotype phrases in in a sort of caricature. Yep. So it's this weird sense of the stereotypes being both harmful but also communication bridges. It's it's a strange way of like portraying the meeting of world and cultures mm-hmm. as two overblown stereotypes smacking into each other. Then there's kind of this overriding theme of friendship portrayed through the the friends themselves, but then also like the Statue of Liberty is a sign of like peace okay. or camaraderie between nations, mm-hmm. and how that is contrasted with the sub theme of deception and like using people, mm-hmm. and you see that primarily through the American Indian, it's just like a lingering darkness I feel in the background. Why? Because in the French, he talks more than once about how the land was sold for a mouthful of bread. That basically the white Europeans came and just got giant chunks of land from the native people's by giving them a small amount of bread. I'm sure now, that's and, the story goes. I'm sure there was nothing worse that ever happened. Never. No. But no it hints at that idea things. of like these people were kind of used. Yeah. And then later we see our again one American Indian representation, Broken Feather. We see him getting literally used out of his money. That he is someone who was owed a debt. That was not being paid. And was even just not even like trying to push the payment because he just assumed that the person drank or smoked it away. Which I feel is kind of a subversion of a trope. Now, I don't know if Lynch was doing this on purpose or not, but 
more of the more negative stereotypes about Native Americans, at least now in in uh, I've you and I have both grown up in areas with rather large Native American populations in Correct. the past. There's the stereotype that Native Americans, a lot of them are drunks, alcoholics, that they'll drink and smoke money away. Um, and that sort of stereotype that gets created about these people. Yep. I almost wonder if Lynch is playing with that or unintentionally brought it up because there's the idea that they're not assuming that about him. It's kind of flipping the script where he's like, he just assumed that the other guy did it. And he's just like, I wasn't even going to bother asking for the money. I do not know how familiar David Lynch is with the Midwest. And I think that that might be a striking point with that. That's the question is we know that with Twin Peaks, his discussions about Fargo, North Dakota, about South Dakota, about Washington, that general Midwest area, and the ways in which Hawk and in the background lingering the Nez Pierce, there is something within Twin Peaks that continuously brings up the native peoples of the area. Yes. So I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. Okay. Not necessarily likely, mm. but could be. Okay. And then the last thing I noticed for themes that I thought was curious, again, maybe not intentional, is that some of the things that in other David Lynch work seem to be forces of negativity are portrayed as generally positive in this one. And so among them, the fire, this is one of those cases where fire is actually kind of a good thing. It's like a gathering where the friends are, they're around the fireplace. Mm -hmm. It's warmth, it's safety, it's a gathering. There's desire and sexuality. The way they're flirting with the women seems to be a more celebratory thing. Yeah. There's no negatives being implied directly. Yeah. Uh, no, directly. there really isn't. No, I mean, no, not directly. It's not portrayed no. negatively. Nope, not not in the media, no. And even the drug element. We talked about that a lot with Twin Peaks, Fire Walk with Me, the drugs, alcohol, the, the cigarettes, the smoking, and also the pills that brought, brought him here in the first place. Mm -hmm. They're described as colorful, magical pills, and he just shows up and it's like a good thing. Mm -hmm. So in all these cases, fire, desire, drugs, things that in a lot of other lynch work we're like suspicious of, mm -hmm. they're not portrayed bad. No. I think that's really curious. Maybe not intentional, but like, isn't that weird? I mean, it nearly gets him killed if it weren't for, say, for example, the French fries in his bag. So that is one area. It makes him an outward suspicious individual. There's almost like, again, there's like that undercurrent of darkness in this, right? Like... You have these miscommunications where they rely on stereotypes that sometimes are negative. They respond with such negativity, much as the Americans do, the Cowboys do, mm -hmm. respond to such negativity with the cheese and the snails. And yeah, they're so violent and distrustful toward outsiders. Mm -hmm. And it's like there's that Cold War kind of atmosphere going on. Again, in the background, 1988, it's still the Cold War. Mm -hmm. There's this distrust that it could be a Russian. And there's that sort of violence that can occur with that uncertainty. Okay. I don't know. I think there's a little bit more going on under the hood than just silly lightness, <laughs> even if that is mostly it. Mm -hmm. Are you still trying to make up your mind of how you feel about it, though, huh? Very much so, yes. Anything more you want to say about the Frenchman? No, let's please quickly. Goodbye. Goodbye, Frenchman. Oh, I still goodbye. have more to say. I'm up ah. As far as connections to other work... Um, I think the idea of Slim being half deaf, people have to yell at him. Okay. Reminds me of a certain Twin Peaks character. Mm hmm. Lil Nicky. Lil Nicky. Remember how everyone had to yell to Lil Nicky and then Shelly Johnson spoke so clearly to him? Yes. So, Gordon Cole, 
Uh, the use of repetition, this time for humor, but again, repetition is big threat as works. You know, what the hell, every single time something is brought out of that suitcase. Yep. And then the chickens and hens are being, like, subliminally equated to, like, the men flirting with the women. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be the last time in a Lynch short film that someone flirts with a chicken. Yep. On that note, but not related directly, premonitions following an evil deed, mm -hmm. a.k.a. Lumiere from 1996. So this one will take a bit uh, to talk about, I'm uh, sure. Ah, yeah. A lot of time. It is quite a lengthy product. So David Lynch, he got a good opportunity. About a hundred year anniversary into cinema and so on. And so he was given a tool with instructions. A camera, specifically. Yes. And it was for this 1995 film. It was going to be a collection of 40 acclaimed directors creating shorts using one of the very early cinematography cameras. The film was going to be called Lumiere et Campagne. Apologize mm -hmm. if I mispronounced that at all. And uh, the rules were kind of rigid. So it had to be a continuous shot captured in a maximum of three attempts. No artificial light sources. No sync sounds. That's S-Y-N-C-H. And the shot could only last a maximum of 55 seconds. Mm -hmm. The length of one reel of film for the camera. Here's the part that I think is interesting. How much do you think it cost in dollars to make premonitions following an evil deed? Six. Six? Six dollars? Sixty. Keep going. Sixty. Yeah. A little less. Pun. No, you got the first number right. It is a six. 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 That'd be very appropriate. It is six thousand dollars. <laughs> very good. That was my seventh guess. I was kind of blown away by that. Like six thousand dollars, nineteen ninety six. Obviously, dollar values change in a couple decades. But that's a lot of money for a minute of film. Yep. I I don't know how much the average film costs per minute, I guess. When you're trying to work <laughs> with technology that has been for quite some time outdated and probably outsourcing mm -hmm. the materials that is required for it, especially, I believe that was noted, uh, there were certain chemicals involved with the use of this product. It's It probably does cast a lot for reasons that no one would ever use it again. So I have a question for you. Suppose that you were a millionaire, okay? No. And you can make one of two investments. Mm -mm. Just for just because you can. I don't want to. Do you want to give David Lynch one thousand dollars to make the alphabet, or six thousand dollars to make premonitions following an evil deed? Why am I the sole investor? You just are. It's a hypothetical. Is David Lynch only wanting to make one or the other? Professor, it's a hypothetical. It's a hypothetical, but these are important bits of information for the hypothetical. Which one do you make? What does he, does he want both? Does he just want one? God told him he can only have one, and you God are the funding. <laughs> Wait, there's David Lynch, there's God involved, Yeah, I'm the funding. Yes. Very cool. Uh, I would say Lumiere then. Really? Yes. Why is that? I think that there is... I do find a fondness for something like the alphabet, but I do love the concept of taking an old piece, an item such as this and letting people experience mm. it again. Mm -hmm. If, if for an emotional value, sure, but also for the value of a form of preservation, maybe not of the pieces that were made, but of the medium 
I think that having something like this that we can now attach to something like DVDs, which I imagine less people would probably be familiar and want to look out for, if mm. not for the names attached, I think that that can be important. Sure, maybe it's an advertisement to look into history, but I think it's an effective one for film buffs. Well, okay then. <coughs> I came out kind of weird. Well, okay then. That's very interesting. I, I want to get this straight. Yeah. Instead of like the sincere, okay then, like I understand. You said that that sounded weird. So you, went, well so, like, so, so you went for Ace Ventura. <laughs> I, heard, I, heard, well, I heard Ace Ventura too. Like not, not the sequel, but that as well. I might keep that in the pod. I think that's a funny exchange we just had. Anyway. It's interesting. I, I, I get what you're saying though about, um, about the value for, not just for film history, but also for giving David Lynch the opportunity to make that. Mm-hmm. The problem for me is that if I were ranking these nine films, yeah, I'd probably give Premonitions Following an Evil Deed slash Lumiere second to bottom okay. for me for personal favorite. And Alphabet might be like two or three top. Okay. I really like the Alphabet. So for me, I'd give the $1,000. I think the Alphabet's the more interesting piece of work okay. for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I respect what you're saying about the, the craftsmanship behind it. And the technology behind it. And the technique, because again, they had very, very limited use of it. Like he had to skirt around the rules to make this even work because he, he creates the appearance of five different locations based on how he was able to close the shutter on the camera and then move to different sets. Yep. So yeah, to actually put this together, it's quite impressive on a technical level. Yep, and not only that, but I do find that the style used with it and the horrifying, harsh lights mm-hmm. used with it, I think that this is most certainly the closest thing to a sci-fi horror that I've seen from David I, Lynch. I don't see the sci-fi part. I agree on the horror part. I say it's sci-fi because the cloth masks yes. that come from the individuals who have the person in the large tube... Mm-hmm. It seems more fleshy just from the light alone. Interesting that you would and say again, that. And again, the use of the giant tube mm-hmm. of all things. I don't know about many cults or individuals of groups that gather together, but a tube investment tube seems like investment. a lot. That's what Google thought when they bought YouTube. So, to make it more clear for those who may not have seen this short film... There's a variety of shots here, and Khalil, I believe that you have them listed in a specific order. I, I very much do. We start off with three cops crossing over a fence toward a woman on the ground. Cut. There's a woman on a couch looking over. Cut. There's looking over, like, beyond the couch, through a window, through a door. Not knowing what she's looking over. Very well. She's looking over. Several women under a tree near some animals. The most cryptic of all the scenes, I would argue. Cut. Men with cloth masks over their faces walking around a tube with a nude woman inside. One of them is repeatedly hitting the tube with what may be an electric rod. And then there is used to make this go into the next part, a flame almost as a transition. Then there's the woman on the couch from before standing up, joined by a man and a cop at the door. And that is the film. Yep. So in terms of interpretation here, we both agree a young woman was probably killed. The cops find this body. Taken and or killed. 
I think, I mean, we see a body on the ground. We see a body on the ground. And the cops but that go might, toward the body. Well, the thing is that we have to put an order of the event. Say, for example, when she is walking away, like, towards whatever she is, if this is the same figure from the first shot to the third or fourth shot of someone looking off into the distance, one of these women, and then one of these women is found limp on the ground, it's really dependent on whether or not you think the cops might be involved. I, I think it's pretty like, clear the woman on the ground is dead. I think it's pretty clear that she is, at the very least, not fully conscious. Yeah. So. And they are presumably then the officers going to tell the parents of the girl. Yes. The bad news, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. The m- more mysterious elements are the women under the tree with the animals. Yep. And the men with the cloth masks over their faces in the test tube area. Mm-hmm. With the regards to the cult-like group, I think there's three distinct possibilities that come to my mind. There might be more than three, but these are the three I came up with. Okay. One is that they are a literal underground cult-like group that probably was involved in the killing, mm-hmm. seeing as how they torture women. Mm-hmm. The second possibility is that they aren't literally a cult-like group, but they maybe represent the sadistic inner fire of the person responsible, the killer okay. or abductor. And then third, which is my preferred interpretation is that the vision we see, it's the premonition in the title, right? Yes. That this is what the woman on the couch, the mom, is imagining might happen to her daughter. It's like a worst-case scenario. What if my daughter was kidnapped, stripped, put in a tube, and tortured by a bunch of masked men? Why a tube? Why not a tube? Why? It's a specific fear. <laughs> yes. I mean, it could have been anything. It could have been a medieval torture rack. Yes. But her mind interpreted this weird tube thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with the women under the tree. I mean... What do you think of them? Something so innocent, sitting around, minding their own business, but just purely having an experience before one is, like, sent away mm-hmm. by something that has grasped their attention. This is the first David Lynch work you've seen that was made after Twin Peaks. Okay. What do you think of that? <laughs> it is. It exists. As much as I imagine, like, the pieces beforehand exist, maybe there's influence that drives it forward maybe there's pieces of this that'll go into the return for me at this moment it's so short of an experience Uh that i couldn't really tell you too much i suppose that it certainly involves engagement of characters in a more serious setting than say for example the cowboy and the frenchman Mm -hmm. that it seems like a more of a narrative okay that sounds like an insult. It seems like something more concretely. I, I don't as think a it's an insult to say something as more or less of a narrative. I could see why someone else would, but yeah. I don't think a narrative is automatically a good or bad thing. I think that someone can more concretely sort of see the situations yeah. and work out a story as opposed to, say, There's for example, plot. the grandmother. There's a plot. Mm. There's a clear plot. Clear plot. Yes. So you would say this is clearer than the grandmother, though. This is clearer than the grandmother, yes. I think. Mm, I, I don't I, here's the thing clarity does not always mean that you have more answers coming out of it right I think clarity is something that can take someone by the hand and lead them along a little bit easier I think and it's I do, hard for me to decide between the two because I think most people who see the grandmother can suss out the idea that it's a boy who's being mistreated by parents and finds comfort in a grandmother who then dies yeah that like basic story I think is just as accessible as this short film that a woman got killed or abducted maybe by this group and the cops are telling the parents. Yeah. I think both have a similar level of unknown then involving 
the reality and the specifics of those things. Okay. I view them on pretty equal levels. I think that I view this more on a level of that clarity, mainly mm. because we are still caught inside of one stylistic realm. Okay. Like we are shot by shot inside of the world itself, even if it is a world through someone's lens So the of abstract art of the grandmother makes it more obfuscated. Yes. Okay. Okay. As far as themes go, we got tragedy, loss, the sort of hidden evil, secrecy, murder kind of route. Um, the nudity and sexuality, I feel like it's kind of latent in there. Mm-hmm. More subdued in the background, but definitely there. Mm-hmm. In terms of connections to anything else, I mean, the loss of a young woman informing the parents, the grief, I think in Laura Palmer, but it's obviously such a very different story. The no dialogue, uh, minimal soundtrack reminds me of a lot of other da- early David Lynch works. Okay. Um, that's about all I got. Very well. Now, is there anything else you want to say before we break into the possibly the most horrifying David Lynch short film? Uh, please no, please no. Oh God, no. Why no? No, no. Not saying for the I, works. I think you're beforehand. looking for the words of um, David Bowie in Fire Walk with Me playing Hell Agent God, Philip Jeffries. Babe, damn no. But not for the works from before. I actually quite enjoyed a majority of them. I'm still debating on one of them. But as far as this next one, ah, uh, the one was an emotional pain from the cowboy and yes. the Frenchman. This one's a physical pain. Uh, coming up with Pierre and Sonny Jim. So all I have for background that I can tell about this is that it was originally debuting on David Lynch's website in 2001. It is currently available on YouTube. I don't know any other background behind this thing. I imagine David Lynch made it by himself. Maybe some other soul helped him. But I do not think this had a big enough operation to have a lot of trivia. Hey, listener, if you know a lot about Pierre and Sonny Jim, I would actually be very interested to know the context of this particular work, you can contact us via Twitter at Snake Eye Dreams One. That is the numeral one, as in only one can survive between Pierre and Sonny Jim. Spoiler: uh, they neither of them do. Or our email at Snake Eye Dreams at gmail.com, as in G. Mail us why we even are involved with this. Khalil, why did you curate this yeah, selection? This is this is the definitely the most suspicious one I've curated because the first six were all part of that collection. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty much canonized as like the main David Lynch short stories. Fire Posar and What Did Jack Do are recent examples of his work. I included Pierre and Sonny Jim, one, because I thought it showed off how dumb his comedy can be and how just silly and unimportant it can be. Mm-hmm. And then mainly for the title, Pierre and Sonny Jim. So Pierre, we've already met as the Frenchman and as the Chalfont Tremont boy. Sonny Jim, put a pin in that. Oh, why? No. Listeners, you know. What? Do they? Yeah. Like Maybe, I- depending on what media they've encountered with David Lynch, they know about <laughs> Sonny Jim. But um, the main thing is, again, the name as well as the type of comedy this is. So, Professor, you watched S- Pierre and Sonny Jim. What happened, Pierre and Sonny Jim? Yeah. Yeah. Sound. Painful sound. Okay, so whapping. Give me your of interpretation of events in the most literal gloves. way. Literal way here. Glove people. Glove people. Face is on the glove people with the large nostrils. Yes. Making horrible sound. And what do you interpret these two characters to be? Are they uh, are they brothers? Are they friends? Uh, are they? T- t- it's Pierre and Sonny Jim. Do they know each other? I don't know. 
Do you sense a familial bond between I'm them? I'm sensing irritation. Are they irritated at each other? I'm irritated at them. <laughs> Are they irritated with you? I'm beyond the fourth wall. Probably not. Okay. Are they having fun? No. Or are they suffering? Suffering. They're suffering. They're suffering because if I have to suffer, they do too. Now, a serious question though. No, I'm being serious. Are they serious. suffering? Now, what's they the evidence? Suffering. One of them, their head falls off. I agree with you. But what if they're having so much fun, their head falls off? No. No. I, th- I agree with you. It's probably more the fear. The fear factor in them. Fear? One of them, after like two minutes of screeching... Like falls, they, they like their head pops off a little bit, and they just fall, leaving just the one left. Now I like to believe I don't know about you. I like to believe Pierre's on the left and Sunny Jim's on the right, left and right from our perspective. So I like to believe it goes Pierre, Sunny Jim in that order, left to right for the viewer. So I believe that Sunny Jim falls first. I believe that after the camera turns off, everyone who exists in that existence dies peacefully. So <laughs> and nothing's peaceful in that world. Um, so Pierre. He eventually falls at the end, but before that, he, he sees Sonny Jim fall and his, like, whimpering noises, like, quiet. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? Sadness. Sadness. Okay. Sadness that his friend Sonny Jim has died. <laughs> okay, good, good. This is all available on YouTube, I, my friend. I think you understand. I'm glad we included this one. We, we, I endured it. I don't know about you, but I endured I survived. Also, their I'm heads a kept getting and Sunny Jim survivor. Their heads kept getting bigger and inflating as the video went on, which I like to believe is probably part of the pain that their heads are swelling. Mm-hmm. That would cause pain. Maybe if you and I, we were the Pierre and Sunny Jim. We were just standing out by some farmland, and our heads started to swell and swell and swell and swell and swell. And then I just suddenly died. Would your whimpering quiet? It really depends because it seems that they didn't stop like making sounds the whole entire time because they were screeching. They were screeching. Um, for the style section of my notes, I put nothing. I literally left it blank. Um, sound design was really good in this. Uh, I think it accomplished goals. I don't think it's meant to sound pleasant. It's meant to sound grating. As much as I can interpret intention behind it. I think it cohesively works as the sounds of unintelligible suffering. Of two children, probably. With balloon heads. Mm. This is not my least yeah. favorite, by the way. When I said like, like premonitions was my second to bottom, this is not the bottom. Ah, I like this one. I like this one a fair amount because hmm. it's so stupid. <laughs> I got to appreciate it on some level. If if only it were as long as, say, for example, premonition. Only it was long. The fifty-five as seconds. The Frenchman and the Cowboy. Twenty-six <laughs> minutes. Did I say 55 seconds? Did I say 55 minutes? I meant 55 seconds. God, if only. If only. If only. Uh, For themes, I put childhood, the unknown blur between joy and suffering, and animal noises and communication issues. Recurring ideas. Every time I look at Pierre and Sunny Jim in my mind's eye, I can't get the sound out of my colleague. Out of my head, Out of your Khalil? Out of my Khalil. You, you, right. you did this to me, Khalil. I, I like and that one. I, I can't escape this. It struck me as funny, Khalil. It struck me. So, striking a match into our next one, we have Fire Posar. Originally made in 2015 as a collaboration between David Lynch and Polish-American musician Marek Zabrowski, who also worked with Lynch on Inland Empire and Polish Night Music, which was an album. Uh, It got released finally in 2020 on YouTube through David Lynch's main channel. 
From what I could tell just by Google Translate, Pozar, the secondary title in parenthesis, is simply Polish for flame or fire, like the noun form. Oh. Not not like to fire someone from a job, in case that would be at all unclear. Unless you want to very physically burn them. You want to walk us through the events on this one since you were so cowardly about Sonny Jim and Pierre? No. Why not? Burn. Okay. Well, fine. Um, so... We have this story taking place of like an enclosure that the professor when you were watching said it looked like a fireplace. Like it you looked said. like a fireplace. It looked like a small hole in which fire would happen. That and thematically just so makes so much sense that, yeah, probably. Yeah, and it makes so much more sense when the first thing that we see is a very long-armed man uh, before asking to return the slab or suffer his curse <laughs> uh, strikes a match and a fire is lit. And when the smoke like appears from the fire, we see like his like color invert like an inverted form of him in the smoke mm -hmm. uh then cuts to a house and a tree in a field really lingers on that scene of the house and tree in a field before a hole is burned in the sky it kind of looks like a sun but that's definitely a hole in the sky that's been burned by like a match because mm -hmm. then a weird looking head pops out with this sort of squirmy creature which by the way the squirm happens through his shadow and not through his physical form like the darker side yeah if you will as opposed towards this you know. And it's kind of weird because, like, it's not the exact same thing as, like, the foamy parts of, like, the people and the grandmother, but it really does resemble that, right? Like... Good old whites and blacks, yeah. yeah. It's kind of crazy considering how much time, like, we're talking about 30, almost 40 years of time difference between these projects. Mm -hmm. But Lynch still has that very specific idea of the sort of foamy, cottony, white body attached to either a head in this case or the torso in the case of the grandmother. Yeah. And meanwhile, we have some fantastic little hands sort of dance around, you know? Dark hands reach out from the dark eye sockets. Then from those dark hands appear two dark eyes. Sort of a looping of hands and eyes. Mm -hmm. it, this is where I'm reading into it a little bit, but I kind of think of someone who, wherever they look, they want to grab and take everything. Okay. And then whatever they see, they, you know, they want to take and their hands almost become like, the sort of all-encompassing destructive force. Mm -hmm. So I see the sort of hand and eye loop as the sort of representation of constant hunger and greed to, to possess mm -hmm. everything you see. Mm -hmm. Once the creature with the weird face and the, the body fly up, the two eyes also fly up, and these black rocks start raining down from the sky. Okay. After a while, the house and tree light on fire. And we see a face appear in the foreground. It's another new face. Weirdly enough, its nose and, like, ear... Are attached by, an, like, it seems like an elbow. It's like a joint, yeah. Looks like a joint. And, ha-ha, uh, not that kind of joint, uh, but more so <laughs> the elbow joint. There's fire here. Okay, okay yeah, it's fair, so. it's fair, it's fair. Um, and we see through this hollowed-out eye, the apocalyptic scene continue fiery in the background. He's also got this kind of creepy tooth mouth, like toothy mouth. Yep. Little, little Nasher. That face fades to a new face underneath that looks almost like the Scream painting with the sort of ghastly eyes and mouth. Sad. We start seeing tears descending from the eyes and dark hands reach up to, like, massage the eyes. Doesn't work. Doesn't have those Do you, do you interpret that it's the hands of the face belonging to the same person or yeah. someone else's hands reaching up? Eh, it seems like trying to wipe tears away, so I'll say it's a self. I... Professor, if I was crying, would you reach your hands over and wipe my tears no. off my face? No. Absolutely you, why not. Why not? I call a doctor. That's a friend. You'd call a doctor because I'm crying? Yes. 
I can't handle emotions. Call a professional in. Call Dr. Jacoby. <laughs> don't call don't call Jacoby. No, no, don't ever do that. And then in a very striking scene and change of pace, the face fades. We end up in a rolling hills, and there's just um these long legged deer creatures. It's like long fingered deer creatures because deer are known for their deer hands. And they go back and forth and they're like almost massive enough to be as tall as the looming factory in the background. Yep. And, and they're definitely more, bigger than the trees. And more and more and more. The tree, the singular tree, the one tree. There's two trees. I'm pretty sure there, there was a house and a tree. Pretty sure there's two trees and because, a factory. Uh, regardless. Might they, even be three trees. Regardless, the antlers certainly look tree-like. That's, uh, that's Fire Posar. Yeah. As they dance about and we zoom right out to that appearance within the fireplace. Can I conservatively call this an apocalyptic short film? Yep. Cool. Um, in terms of connections, jumping ahead to that, fire, lighting a match, uh, things like that, Leland at Pearl Lakes, etc., etc. Also, put a pin in the tall deer creatures. Okay. Put a pin in that. Uh-huh. Listeners. You know about that. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. This one's a little less likely, but maybe you do. Maybe. I still think you do. Do they have fingers? You'll know soon. <sighs> and then uh, as far as style, what'd you think of the style of this thing? It was return the slaps up for my curse. No, I enjoy the like layer 2D animation that sort of exists throughout this whole entire session, mm -hmm. if you will. It is something that I think does... What one of Lynch's strengths is, is to press a mood forward and let you kind of get carried away by it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know as much of interpretation, if you will. That one's a little bit more difficult. I think that's the most difficult one for me for here. This is the most difficult to interpret? Yes. I mean, again, I think it's apocalyptic. I think there's the idea that someone has an evil idea, they strike the match, and as a result of that idea, that match being struck there is a form of suffering that a hole got burned through the sky. Evil was let through that hole and end up tearing everything apart, resulting in sadness and destruction. I also kind of want to read an environmentalist message out of it. Not necessarily, again, on purpose, but the single factory. Why would you ever want to put up an environmentalist message here at this time and day around this point of recording in which there's weather predictions such as smoke? Why? So... Stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. So anyway, um, you know, fire, destruction, that lone factory in the background still has me suspicious. And the sort of reclaiming of the land by these mutated animal creatures at the end. Mm. I don't know. Kind of kind of like there's an environmentalist message you could read into it pretty easily. Mm -hmm. In terms of style, like, yeah, it's got some similarities to like early Lynch films, the no dialogue, the sort of his art style leaking through in his visuals. But the thing that separates it the most, probably stylistically for me, is the music. Okay. That this is not like wet wet flesh sounds and like ambient noise droning. Nope. That it is this composer. I think that the contribution that's made here by Merrick Sabrowski is pretty important to the work and the mood. Mm -hmm. It's very dreary. It's very dreary and intense. Yep. Nope. There's there's no I can't see any happy times coming out of this. I can't. If you hear someone who says, yep, you know what? Fire pose are. It's my favorite comedy of the year. A run. Do you sense any happy times coming out of what a Jack do? Don't insult me like this. What do you mean? 
what did Jack do indeed? We get a... Let's set the scene, shall we? We get... David Lynch's 74th birthday. It is? Netflix released What Did Jack Do in 2020. Yeah, okay. So on a 74th birthday, that's very neat. A very strange number, but by all means, the number 74. David Lynch, he's working with his wife, Emily Stoffel, actually, who plays the waitress. Okay, actually, let me check something. Yes. I'm curious on this. Yes. When was David Lynch's first short film? That would have been way back... And I believe 1966 with six men getting sick. When was his first film? First film is Eraserhead. Okay. Which is over in 1978. Damn it. Okay, so there's some, there's nothing to do with 1974, I imagine. What do you mean? Because I'm thinking like number 74, if there's any significance on whether or not it mattered, that was his 74th birthday. No, I don't think so. Okay. The amputee was made in 1974. Okay. Nope. It's a it's an anniversary of Netflix's I, I, favorite short film. Literally, all it is is that Netflix released it on his birthday. That's that's all this is. Oh, well, that's it's still something. Sweet. But yeah, nope. A monkey is invited to take a seat with a detective because hey, the train's not around. The train's not coming. Unfortunately, the monkey's name is Jack Cruz. Sure, it is. And as he's sitting at the table. And waiting for his train because he's supposed to be out of town by now. Mm-hmm. Turns out that there's there's some spare Something time. Something caught up to him Something. a little before he could leave. Yep, yep. And David Lynch uh, as the detective. Basically Gordon Cole. Basically Gordon Cole. This is one of his Blue Rose cases. Investigates further into the matters and just like almost like kind of edges him saying like, hey, we got some information. Looking into the death of a character named Max Clegg. I don't think the species has ever confirmed what Max is. What do you mean? Like what species he is. Uh, Why would you need... We don't need that. I mean, it seems pretty important considering that Jack is a literal monkey and that he had been romantically involved with a literal hen. Yeah, it doesn't... To to Tobin. It doesn't matter what species it is. I don't see... No, it's okay. I think you'd be curious to know. Just Max. We know that Jack in the past has killed a gator. So... Assumedly. Assumedly. He says so. He says so. Why would I disbelieve anything Jack ever says? Because Jack is Jack. Jack is someone who... I don't think you know Jack. I I think I know plenty about Jack because he keeps sort of dodging questions. He ends up sort of giving off sass. It's a monkey that throughout the whole entire endeavor is very resistant and just pushes against the detective character in order to say, like, you don't understand. You're not getting the full picture. You got an orangutan? Ah, you got nothing. Except he doesn't say it like that. He says it like a distorted computer that has been put into a monkey. Because the monkey is physically... The monkey is speaking English with likely, I'd imagine, I could be wrong, because it says that the monkey was played by himself, but I'm pretty sure it's just (laughs) David Lynch... I'll leave that one up to you, Professor. If the monkey talked or if that was David Lynch's voice. I'm pretty sure that that was like David Lynch having his mouth overposed on a monkey and talking to himself because the candor on it is something. And before you get too worried, though, about this uh, encounter being too unequal in terms of its aggression coming from Jack, uh, both Jack and the detective know how to dish out very, very general random phrases yep and like you rolled a seven dialogue that's almost all expressions mm-hmm. yeah you roll you roll you rolled a seven um uh you, there's no such thing as santa claus i won't be here for christmas now leo 
Are you telling me that there's no Santa Claus? It's, it's it's the biggest thing with the writing style. What did you think of that? This is basically stereotypes, but not like in the level of the cowboy and the Frenchman, but more so casual ones that you would find in, say, for example, a detective story. Yeah, everyone's using the one-liners. Everyone's using the the zinger reference well, lines. Both are going back and forth with the zinger ones, in which you could imagine that they would be the protagonists of their own story. Right. Following them. Following each other, I suppose. Well, one following, one trying to escape. So, yeah, at the end of the day, it is proven that, yup, Jack most definitely killed Max out of a jealous rage. Yep. Presuming Be- that Tutatabon had been... Tutatabon being the hen. Being the hen had that- been romantically involved with Max. The detective claims, though, that no, she was actually loyal to just him. He had the wrong idea. Yep, she but was it's just too late now. Night. Yeah. Uh, Tutatabon actually shows up at one point, no dialogue, just clucking. And that's what causes Jack to chase after her and into the hallway where we don't see what happens. No one said we get the detective saying, get him boys. It seems that Tatadabon was likely someone who ended up also giving information forward, judging from what the detective knows and judging from Jack getting cornered. Yeah, no, it, it seems like a general detective story in which I have to uncomfortably think about chicken breasts. Yeah, the way that's described is very uh, curious. Yeah, it's, um, you know, talking about the boobs, talking about, like, you would never understand. It's love. It's love. Feel those feathers. Mm. So, mm. in terms of similarities, mm. we've got the waiter giving coffee, the detective element from Twin Peaks, literally Gordon Cole, basically, at this point. Yeah. The monkey face, even, from Fire Walk with Me comes to my mind. The old film stock, the way, well, at least the way it's shot, it looks like a more black and white older short film, but obviously being more, more production value that's more recent. Okay. But again, it is interesting that he's still doing those black and white films, right? Mm-hmm. He still definitely believes in that element. At one point, the detective asked Jack if he'd been a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. So some weird like Cold War era communism scare, which yep. I thought was really curious. Because yep. then the rest of it doesn't really have a time and place. We don't really get a setting for this other than just a train station. I think it's just one of those many one-liners because there would be obviously suspicion on things like that, likely in many detective stories of the time. But don't worry, Jack is a plastic bag specialist. I don't know what that means. Also, another very common phrase you'd find. No, no, that one actually is very difficult. And uh, Jack also sings a song at one point. He, he does a song. He does. He does. Or David Lynch sings a song if you believe that that's David Lynch's voice. Uh, it's painful. What'd you think of that song? It, I said it's painful. Yeah, why did it hurt you? Because it, it does, no notes were hitting. I can't wait to show you David Lynch's music albums. <laughs> for unrelated reasons, because that was actually the monkey song. <laughs> I, I'm going to be honest here and say that when I first saw this, I wasn't really that impressed. Okay. Um, and the second time you saw it, you were very impressed. I was more open to it. And the third time you fell in love. It's the, probably my least favorite David Lynch short film. And the fourth time you found Tatata Bond yourself. And I feel like that's probably a really controversial hot take. I think people liked this when it came out. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's outright bad. I Again, I, I think I've seen only a few short films, and I still think Lynch's lower short films are still really quite good for short films. Okay. But I find this thing drags. Okay. Like, I know that you found the Frenchman and the cowboy dragging. For me, just this constant dialogue of references and phrases. 
It just dragged for me. It's just the question of at what speed. This one's a slow drag in which you're being slowly taken down the hallway, if you will, just piece by piece. Meanwhile, Cowboy and the Frenchman, it's as if someone's making a speed run effort of like flying through the hallways, banging you against multiple of the walls along the way. That sounds Uh, way more fun. It's fun? Yes. I just said you hit walls in the hallway as you're being carelessly flung around. That sounds more fun. What? I mean, it's an experience, you know? You know, I'll, I'll take the lazy river over okay. the concussion so bridge. So you, you liked what did Jack do? I was okay with it. Okay with it's it. It's something that I do agree does drag. Mm-hmm. I think that there are just a fair amount of one-liners that are just like, okay, where are we going now? Right. And it's very predictable. And like once you like sit down and look at the story, pretty simple story. It's it's about as like basic as you can get with a detective story. Yeah. It's it's jealous murder situation. Yes. And we don't know the exact ending. I mean, you could leave it open to interpretation that most likely Jack gets arrested, but maybe he fights the police. Maybe he escapes on the train. Mm-hmm. Maybe Tutanabon jumps in and intervenes. Who knows? What sort of monkey business awaits? We'll never know. Ah! You're probably wondering how many monkeys are in the barrel when it comes to my wonderful strange questions of the week. They're bananas. There's two of them. I Mm. have two wonderful strange questions of the week for you, Professor. Okay. Question number one. Twelve. Very expected question. I Mm -hmm. naturally have to ask you. That's why I answered twelve. Of the nine short films we've watched, which one at this moment in time is your personal favorite and why? Subjective, totally just your opinion, doesn't have to be the best one, just the one you like the most. This is harder than you think because liking a film, this is going to be wild. For I'm ready, like man. Answer. Drag me down the hallway. Liking a film is not just recognizing the merits of the film itself and recognizing the quality of the film of itself, or even just, I would even say, liking those aspects. But it's also the engagement that you get with memories, with how it stands out in your head, and just that sort of feeling you'll get that it sticks with you. Yes. And you've only you'll seen these like it. in one day. And I we have gruelingly watched these in one day so twice. That's where I have to get a little predictive here, because I would like to tell you that mine was going to be something like the alphabet or something that is fantastic. Like, because I thoroughly think quality wise, the one that stands out the most is Lumiere. Genuinely. I do think that there Premonition is Premonition following an evil deed. Yes. I think that's capturing a story so quickly and so finitely in just those moments mm-hmm. using that bit of technology. I, I do find very impressive, especially what is used there. It is the most, it is the most valuable work to me that comes from this in the value of what I think gives forward from David Lynch in his work with cinema. And so that's the one that gives me the most positive feeling Okay, that you could attribute to like, but, but then we have that external factor there. And that is going to be the thing that sticks in my memory the longest. The feelings and emotions that I will likely have ever referencing back to you. Not towards the merits of what I believe is good or right with the film. 
Say it. Mm. Likely, uh huh. The one that I will end up liking the most is the cowboy and the Frenchman. And I'm wow, not, that's problematic. Professor. It is. It is. It, it <laughs> is. But if I had to tell you what's gonna stick inside my head, and maybe because a lot of it can be, I think that there is a heavy amount of influence. Whether chicken egg scenario, we get into it on things like Twin Peaks, if you will, yeah. or just like going into that directing style. But it is something that is, amongst all of these, very unique, what it gives forward. Among a set of unique short films, it still does stand it, out. It is very bold in what it does. Yeah. But, it's and not all, subtle. Amongst all other bold takes inside of it, yeah. which seem to have similar themes in bold takes, this seems like the boldest of the bold in the left field. Okay, okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. Are you happy? Yeah. Are you happy and proud of yourself? I am. Are, am I done being interrogated? No, I have another question. <sighs> but can I answer for my favorite first? Sure. Okay. It's the grandmother. Hmm. Surprise? No. Nah, I didn't think so. No, really, but you can still go further. No, I, um, I'll, I'll be very quick. Um, I really like the grandmother. Um, it's one that I think captures not only a very concrete story emotionally within the time it's developed, but it also has enough of that sort of ambiguity and, and abstractness that I think you're allowed to create different senses and different interpretations very readily of what the relationships are like and the nature of the reality of what we're seeing. Okay. I really like the mixed media approach that he takes with the two-dimensional art pieces mixed in with the extremely stark like coloration of the black and white and red and orange okay. inside of the apartment. Um, mm -hmm. That sort of visual aesthetic is super strong for me. I love the sound design. Even just, again, the, the imagery, the the sort of Silent Hill approach okay. where you see that stump ominously on the bed. <laughs> what even is that? And there's the hole and it's like the hole is like wet and glistening. And then just a person comes out of that. It's It's very surreal it's surreal it's striking it is something that is very much there and will be very tied to the grandmother but for some reason a plate of french fries in a suitcase is seems so outrageous to me that that will likely stick in my i think we've more. both chosen great choices <laughs> hey at least neither of us chose pierre and sunny jim no one would no Which... one i don't believe a singular person would what if that's David Lynch's favorite? What if that's his favorite work? David, we need to talk. <laughs> exactly. I am a sixth man getting sick. Anyway. Anyway. Last uh, second uh, question of the week. So, Professor. Mm-hmm. You've seen these nine films, and you've watched Twin Peaks and Firewalk with me and the missing pieces. Mm-hmm. How have these short films... Over the course of this one day, how have they developed your view of David Lynch as an artist? It's something in which I think I mentioned earlier in this podcast before, but I kind of wish that I have seen more of those mixed medias. I think mm. that he has a talent for them, and even if he uses other people's hands if he wants to explore that, I think that... I would really like to see some more films that do explore more than just the, what's on camera. There's still heavily a talent into that. 
especially when you're working with something cohesively. Mm -hmm. But there is something that is very unique on what people walk away from when they see appearances like with Fire Posar, when they look at some of the more animated section of the grandmother, when they sort of try to like sit and figure out whether in a box or in an actual room or being a, a box in a room, when you're trying to work out something such as the six people getting sick. Mm -hmm. It is... It's playing with the medium enough that remains heavily unexpected of what's to happen next. And I do think that it's done to an extent in Twin Peaks, but if there's one thing I'm looking forward to looking in his larger filmography is hopefully wanting to have that same wanting to mix those medias for wanting to make these paintings, if you will, these moving paintings. Okay. So you mentioned before that, like, and this is not a question I originally planned, but just kind of as you were talking, made me think of it. More interrogation. Um, you mentioned before that you've, you know, you've seen a lot of Twin Peaks influence in other works that you've enjoyed. And, yes. and you can hear how those works are influential. Do you know of any art that you've seen that either, like, you know the creators were inspired by David Lynch specifically, or that you could just kind of sense that there's a similarity mm. to David Lynch's short films? Not Twin Peaks, but like, because I mentioned Silent Hill, that I see Silent Hill in The Grandmother. I'm wondering, when you saw any of these nine, did you see anything you know in these nine? A lot of these likely deal in genres that I have hardly really touched the surface on. I don't know. Like science fiction. Like, like science fiction. I think that the closest one that potentially is the case, though I'm very iffy on if it is the case is something like John R. Dilworth's Courage the Cowardly Dog with its use of mixing styles and mediums, if you will. Yeah, that's actually a really good comparison, to be honest with you. Yeah. We've we've referenced Courage the Cowardly Dog a strange amount in this podcast. It's probably the third or fourth time we've referenced Courage the Cowardly Dog, at least. <laughs> Too little. Too, Too little. little. But I, I do think that there's some fair comparisons to be made here. I think that Lidge would have been a fun like guest director just to <laughs> apply his art style and, and horror because realistically, like, yeah, there's a lot of dark themes of Lynch's work, but a lot of what's disturbing about Lynch's stuff isn't even, like, explicit, necessarily. No. Like, some of this stuff is, like, yeah, obviously too sexually charged to put in a kid's show, but could Lynch craft something in the Courage to the Cowardly Dog vein? Yeah, yeah, I think he could. No, I think very much so. It's using that surreal element of taking something, turning it to a grotesque level at points, and then playing with that with different just general styles. There's nothing really fully consistent with Courage the Cowardly Dog mm -hmm. throughout its series. We see claymation. We see uh, a use of 2D on top of like a larger scape of 2D animation uh, that blends things such as overall filters. That and so infamous on. CG shot toward the last episode. Yep. You are not perfect. You're not perfect. Love it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> well, anyway, Professor, you are not perfect. Thank you. And this episode is not perfect either. We're not perfect. You're not perfect. But we appreciate you sticking around. Yeah. And uh, next time we're looking at Eraserhead, the first feature-length film of David Lynch, a cult classic that started Lynch's widespread phenomenon, power, our celebrity dominance. I look forward to the documentary on pencils. Any 
last words, Professor, before I shoot you with this gun? Because I'm a cowboy and you're a snake. I'm a snake? Yes. Or a bird. You're a grandmother bird. Any last words? You're looking at me like I'm saying weird things. No, I'm trying to think of something. It's like snake, bird, I dreams, being, person, thing, concept. No. <laughs>